You are listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I'm your host, Mike Petchy. How are you? Come on in, grab a seat, make some room on the couch because our guest is coming in studio today. Don't crowd him, relax. It's going to be exciting. I know you're here because you saw the graphics. You saw the uh, description of today's show. You're probably here because you're either in love with cinematography. Maybe you're in love with cameras. Maybe you're uh, someone that wants to know more about the mythical thing that is anamorphic lenses, right? So many of us, like when you think anamorphics, what is the first thing you think of? right? Is it the flares? Is it the super wide palette that you get to play with? Is it the depth? Maybe it's the bokeh. Maybe you're a super nerd about cinema and you're like, I love the oval bokehs that happen with anamorphic lenses. Uh, But maybe you're just a regular on this show and you're tuning in and you're like, Mike, I don't even know what a fucking anamorphic lens is. Well, let let me just set you up right now. If you're here and you want to get into it, and you want to get real nerdy and technical, we're going to do that on today's show. I have the ultimate guest to come on, talk about anamorphics, but more than just get technical with it, uh, he's going to unload some history on us, some history I didn't know about. He's going to start to talk about the origins of a lot of these things that we do as young filmmakers that we don't even know why we do it. We don't even know where it comes from. When's the last time you stuck up your two hands to make a frame and sort of describe like what's going to be seen in that frame? Do you know why that exists? Do you know where that comes from? It's crazy, man. We're going to get into it. It's a lot of stuff that is going to be talked about on today's show that is surprising to me. And I can't wait for you to be surprised as well. And there are plenty of places that you can go to learn about anamorphic lenses. Maybe you have scoured all of the videos on YouTube. You've gone through the process of seeing people uh, literally drool over the flares. It's all about the flares and whether or not I'm getting the right flares. And, oh, I can't get my hands on an anamorphic lens. I'm going to buy these filters that do this blue flare. And that's what I'm doing. And yeah, okay, great, man. It's one of the tools. It's one of the items with it. The reason why I fell in love with anamorphics is because it literally gave me a wider stage to block actors with. Right? Now, look, I'm not going to pretend like there isn't some sort of nostalgic thing that's happening with me. I'm not going to pretend like I don't feel like I'm seeing a real movie unless it reminds me of the movies that I grew up watching and falling in love with. And the biggest formula for me, the biggest missing piece that I had for years as a young filmmaker and cinematographer was that I wasn't shooting stuff anamorphic. And if you want sort of some references. Maybe you you don't understand the difference between an anamorphic and a spherical lens. You don't understand the difference between why certain movies uh, back in the day would have letterboxing before all TVs got super wide. And even now, when you watch certain movies, you're like, I got a wide TV. Why does it still have black bars on the top and bottom? Because it shot anamorphic. It shot in the widest scope possible. We will go deep into the history of where that comes from why Hollywood decided to do those things. This is a very detailed historical conversation on the history, on the romance, on the spectacle that is anamorphic lenses. I'm excited to have our guest on today. And one of the things about today's guest is that I found him um, 
basically by accident. I was looking for some new anamorphic lenses on the marketplace. I wanted to see if there were some great options. Um, realistically, here's why. Most great anamorphic lenses when I started were just these old lenses that were sitting on shelves somewhere, right? Or even lenses that were being used by people like Michael Bay, custom-made lenses that were super expensive in the rental houses out here in California. But on the East Coast, no one had anamorphic lenses at that time. Rental houses were carrying them. It was such a specialty item specifically made for big movies and big 35mm films, right? And that, when I was a kid, that's what they were used for. And as we crossed into the digital age and we started to shoot stuff with your, you know, Canon XL1s, your, uh, your Nikon uh, D80s, your Nikon D90s, rather, your Nikon uh, or your Canon uh, 5Ds, suddenly, like, the world started to change and people started to get more desperate for interesting-looking glass, right? Because... There was a lull in the marketplace. You were shooting a lot of glass through still lenses. Uh, suddenly people were going back and getting lens adapters and figuring out how to mount PL mounts to their uh, DSLRs. And so the old uh, cheaper lenses at the rental houses became the, the lenses that were the most sought after ones for quite some time for these productions, right? And so there was this push. There were so many of us that were digital sorry my mouth isn't working so many of us that were digital cinematographers at that time that wanted uh to have our stuff look even more like movies right and so uh there was a period of time where many of us were like hunting down anamorphic adapters for our cameras and i, I started to get introduced with like the the de-squeezing and like what is 2x and and what is what does all this mean it didn't make any sense to me and you have to dig back through history to understand why anamorphic was created, how it was created. It's a fascinating story. And um, how it was projected and what the aberrations meant and what the limitations of those lenses were. And then on top of everything, how those limitations became part of the visual tapestry that is cinema for the 80s, all throughout the 80s. Right? Because you've got McTiernan, you've got Spielberg, you've got Carpenter. And so all of these faults that these lenses had, these filmmakers would exploit. And those things became the things that I associated with cinema, with movies. So um, I'm excited today. And uh, so he's on his way now. And I'm excited to have Dan Keynes in our studio today um dan is from atlas i know so many of you are drooling right now yes atlas makes amazing anamorphic lenses um i have shot with the atlas lenses i just shot my new piece with the orion series which was one of their first uh, series out in the marketplace i love those lenses they're incredibly cinematic um they're 2x lenses which really harkens back to the old way that uh these lenses were used and built and the look that they get. Um, but everybody's getting real nerdy and drooly and ordering and, and being put on waiting list for their Mercury series that's coming out, which I've also played with. And those are really cool as well. So um, I asked Dan to be on the show because I love the lenses. I just, he loaned me 
uh, kit of them to shoot this new short that I cannot wait for you to see. It's gorgeous. Um, but that's not why I had them on the show. I had them on the show because when I went down to Atlas and just did one of their, you know, meet and greets, and I got to get my hands on some of their lenses and look at their lenses with another group of people, Rick Darge took me down. And Rick and I, there's footage of us uh, out there of us testing these lenses and putting them through their paces. And, uh, you know, you've seen clips that Rick's posted of me. And, uh, and I think Atlas actually posted the clips of Rick on their website. Um, but while we were there that day, I met Dan. And Dan was taking us through his space. He has this wall, this wall of history, of anamorphic history. And I just like watching and looking through all these different lenses. And I'm like, weird. Does that have like an, like an external focus? Is that a focus wheel just for the anamorphic adapter? That's weird. And so he was so knowledgeable about the history of lenses and the history of anamorphic lenses. And uh, I felt like, you know, just my 15 minute conversation I had with him there, I was learning more than I was able to find on the internet. You know what I mean? And so I said, Dan, you got to come on the show. So you guys are in luck. If you uh, are wanting to be a cinematographer, if you want to understand why certain anamorphics do what they do, if you want to feel like you know the true knowledge behind them, uh, then strap yourselves in because today is the episode for you. Um, and uh, before we get into it, I just want to thank everybody for following me on Instagram at Mike Petchy and following the uh, podcast Instagram at In Love With The Process Pod. Now, I don't know when this episode is going to drop. I'm recording this on February 7th, but I should say something about... Um, I've been getting messages from all my new friends uh, in Turkey and in Syria. 12KM really has blown up in uh, those places. It's surprisingly to me, and, and, and they're the warmest, most wonderful folks. Uh, they have been very supportive of the film. Um, I've been getting love notes from everybody that wants to see the movie, that has seen the film, and I've been trying to respond to as many of those DMs as possible. Um, and uh, this is the week that that horrible earthquake hit. Um, and uh, I've seen people have been sending me their own cell phone videos, videos of stuff that they've seen. It's just devastating um, to see uh, the destruction that has happened because of this earthquake. And some of the stuff is just like... You would think it's scenes from a movie, just the way that these buildings are collapsing post the earthquake and people that are trapped in these buildings. And my heart goes out um, to everybody. And if um, you want to support them, if you want to do donations, just do your research. Um, I'm going to try to do some research and post. This will probably happen well before this episode comes out, but I, I want to say it live. And I will also say it this Thursday when I do the actual week's podcast. Um, my heart goes out to everybody and to all my new friends out there. Uh, you know, I hope you're safe and uh, um, we'll try to find uh, a reputable donation area for those of you that want to donate. I'm always very cynical about donate, donating to certain companies. I'm like, is this physically getting to people? Um, but um, yeah, man, it sucks. It sucks how 
you know, something can happen so quickly and just devastate an entire area. And like I said, just lovely, lovely, lovely people. So um, my heart goes out to everybody with that. Uh, but that being said, let's see um, what else. <clears throat> before we get into the show with Dan, before he gets here, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, one of the reasons why I'm doing today's show, which is to educate you and educate myself more on the meetings behind Anamorphics, but also where a lot of the rhythms and routines that we do as film crew without really questioning it um, and without really knowing why uh, sometimes it seems ridiculous right and I was noticing this when I was working on that short film that I've talked about uh, when I showed up as a gaffer and there was a friend of ours uh, was coming on as just a general PA and one of the benefits of going on to, a, especially like an indie film set as a PA, is that um, you get to learn a bunch of different things because m oftentimes you just thrust into different departments, right? And so uh, he was thrust into slating, right? So he had to slate the different scenes. And uh, I watched as, as someone sort of handed him a slate, they pushed a slate at him, and they quickly said last minute, like, uh, just write down what what scene number it is, write down the take, get in front of the camera, say that stuff out loud, and clap the slate, right? And so I watched him sort of take that information. He's doing a really good job with it. He takes that information and goes, I, th I think I got this. And so then he was trying to, he was like, what scene is this? What take is this? He'd write that down. He was hyper-focused on, on marking the slate that way, right? And so then I watched him go in and slate, and he'd hold the slate up in front of the camera, and sometimes you would see what was written and he would clap it and the clapper itself wasn't on screen and so there hit some points where i was at the monitor and i was like lower the slate lower the slate lower the slate and he would lower it too low and bring it up too high and he'd say some stuff and then he'd clap it and uh there were moments where people would there were a couple takes where they would yell out, we'll just tail slate this. And he would look at me cross-eyed and he's like, what does tail slate mean? And it occurred to me, I was like, okay, so you're doing a really good job of doing what someone told you to do, right? They threw the slate at you and they said, just do this step and this step. And you're doing a really good job of that. But I said to him like, would you like to know what that's for? And he had this moment where he goes, yeah, actually, yes. And I go, because if you know what it's used for, you'll understand what's important about what it is that you're doing. And he goes, yeah. And then I kind of felt like the old guy on set for a hot second, you know what I mean? And I didn't want to feel like I was lecturing him. So I said, so let me just, let's pretend like we're in the edit room, okay? And think about it this way. You're recording two independent things. You've got audio that's going into that digital recorder that's there. But there's no visual reference that's being recorded with it. It's just audio. So how do you know when you're listening back to those files where those things go, right? Because we've done multiple takes and the actor says the same thing in multiple takes. So how do you know which one it's for? So when you say it out loud and you say take one, uh, shot five or shot R, take one or whatever you do, right? You call out that labeling of it. 
that when you're listening to that and you're putting those in binge, you go, got it, that's what that is. Now, how do you associate that with the correct video? Well, on screen, without audio, maybe there's guide audio, but let's pretend there isn't. Without audio on screen, you see a slate that says, you know, shot R, take one, right? You go, okay, so how do I find that audio for it? Oh, I look for the one that says shot R, take one. Great, I got that. Now I have them both, right? How do I lay them on top of each other? Well, I can try to try to make it work. So when he says the, I think I have it right, right? And so I'll find the wave for the, and I'll match it up with his lips. But there's always like this discrepancy, right? Like when do you start the, like when does that start? Is that sound starting when his tongue hits his bottom lip? Or is that sound starting as he opens his mouth? And it may look right there for the, but then you get about a minute down into that take and everything just doesn't seem right. It doesn't look right, right? So that's what the clapper's for. So with the clapper, the idea is that once that clapper hits itself, so you close it, or even if you clap your hands and you do a clap, right? That moment of contact creates a single sound which if you're looking at the audio file, that clap sound is this peak. So then, uh, old school way of doing this was you would look, you would shuttle through the video footage or the film footage for when that clapper actually contacted and you would line up that little peak sound there and everything would be in sync. So I explained this to him and he went, oh, and you go, yes. So it's important not only to see on screen the labeling of it but you have to see that clapper oh and then i he's like well what's with tail slate well sometimes you start a scene you start rolling and the actors are ready to rock or there's some sort of special effect and you going in to slate it at the front end of it means it's going to ruin shit so they call out while rolling we're going to tail slate this so that the person listening to those audio clips goes got it or maybe they didn't call that out ahead of time and the take started and there was no slate and they go, ah, oh, fuck, I'm fucked because I'm not going to be able to slate this correctly. I'm not going to be able to sync this correctly. And then they listen all the way to the end of the clip and they go, tail sticks, right? Tail slate. So the correct thing to do is you hold the slate upside down and you mark it. Now, why do you hold the slate upside down? In the old days when you were shooting on film and you had multiple takes on one strip of film, you would see a take without a slate at the front end of it. And you'd go, shit, where's this slate? You go all the way to the end and you see a slate that's regular sized. It's, it's up the right way, right? It's like a standard looking slate. And you go, is this a slate for that take or is this a slate for the next take? What is this slate for? If it's upside down, you know it's tail sticks. See what I mean? Cool, right? So as you start to understand the origin of these things that are just told to us, that we just passively are handed a slate and some tape and a marker, and we're like, make this happen, right? We don't understand the purpose of it. If you want to be successful as a film crew person, as a filmmaker, it's imperative for you to ask questions. Ask when someone hands you that slate, say to them like, what's this for though? 
because you'll be able to do that job even better and you'll be able to influence that job. You'll know at that point, like, well, it's really important that the slave is in the shot. Is, is this a close-up or is this a wide shot? What are you focused on as a cinematographer? Is this focused on her face? That means you're using a longer lens, right? So I should put that real close to the same distance from the camera that her face is. You don't have to stick it in front of that actress's face, but you can stand that same distance away off to the side so that all they have to do is turn the camera and you're already in focus. Now you're being quick because you understand things. Now it's happening faster. You're not slowing things down. All that stuff is adding to being able to get more shots at the end of the day. So my point in telling that story is that I hope you learn today on today's show more about anamorphics, more about the processes that were used for this stuff so that it makes sense to you. And then you can use that knowledge to be more efficient. You can use that knowledge to be smarter about selecting what lenses you use and understanding why they do what they do. And then being able to fuck with those aberrations and those color inefficiencies. That's the hope with today's show. All right, enough ranting and rambling from me. Crank up those noise-canceling headphones. Make some room on the couch. Dan is on his way in. Sit back, relax, and be a part of a really fun conversation on the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. Dan, how are you, buddy? I'm doing great, hanging out in beautiful downtown Glendale. (laughs) It's awesome that you're here today. Yeah. (laughs) Like, we've slowly been trying to work back into people coming into the studio after the pandemic, and it's always exciting. When you were like, dude, I'll just come to the studio, I was like, okay, cool. (laughs) I think it just feels better to be, you know, connecting in person. We can look at each other in the eyes, and, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're at home in the computer, there's so many distractions that it's just like... Yeah. <laughs> well, you get to talk to me with pants on, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, coincidentally, you didn't wear pants today, but um, I have my pants on. So, <laughs> for, for the record, that's what I, that's what I meant. <laughs> uh, so, um, I met you at the uh, Atlas event that you guys did. I came over with Rick Darge and we hung out. Yeah, I love Rick. Yeah, yeah. Rick is one of my favorite dudes. Um, and uh, I was just a. First, let me just say this. I've always been an anamorphic dude. I'm always an anamorphic fan. I am an anamorphic filmmaker. I love the stage that it provides me to do shots and for blocking, which I'm very, very happy with. And there are a lot of different reasons we can get into that stuff as we talk lenses, but there's a lot of different reasons why people get into anamorphics. I feel like people are seduced by anamorphics, by the flares and by all the 
imperfections that come with them, but my seduction with them comes from my love, honestly, comes from my love of old Godzilla movies and Toho Studios. And just watching those directors just put a camera on a tripod, not even move the camera, and have the stage for actors to actually block in and out of close-ups. You could do a three-person close-up if you wanted a three-person close-up, and you just have such a larger format to play with as a director. So I love anamorphic for that reason. I mean, that's exactly what I was going to ask you is like, what, um, what brought the idea of anamorphic into your mind or how did you first become aware of the notion of what was actually going on? Because this is something that's prescient for me. And when I'm looking back at, you know, how I first became interested in lenses mm. and I love that you brought up Toho studios and, you know, Toho scope, which was their own in-house mm-hmm. anamorphic lens system that they developed. Um, somewhat related to the Nippon scope, which is another Japanese anamorphic format. Um, but you know, uh, Eric Hall on our team at Atlas is also a huge, uh, fan of anything Toho studios and, and old Japanese films. Dude, this is why I'm so happy to have you here today. (laughs) (laughs) The nerd, the nerd trailer. We're going to be able to leave with this. It's so good. Uh, yeah, yeah. I I mean, it was always a subconscious thing. I've, I've said this a lot on my show. When I got into filmmaking, I wasn't a young Spielberg. I wasn't like 12 years old running around with cameras and stuff. I, I watched movies like everybody did. But I'm 45 this year. So this was prior to YouTube, prior to everybody sort of talking about how movies were made. And so um, I just, I never thought that Indiana Jones lived in a box in my living room. But at the same token... All those movies, those Spielberg films, those John Carpenter movies, they were laying sort of the format for what I saw this imaginary world to be. And most of the time they were shooting something on anamorphic. And when I started my career as a shooter, because early on I taught myself how to be a cinematographer because all of the, this was in the early days of digital, like prior to like Canon XL1s like oh pre-XL1 days yeah, wow really early on when I got out of school and most of the cinematographers were still all 35 old crotchety guys and they were just like you know and so I couldn't convince them to come shoot in my garage so I had to teach myself cinematography um and I decided to curve in hard into the digital at that time because I'm like look there's a lot of old crotchety dudes that are so much better than I'll ever be with 35 so why don't I play with this new stuff Um, but the problem that we were constantly having, especially in the early days, you were still shooting with like television video lenses, which was a nightmare. Mm -hmm. And then we got into like the PS Technic adapters and we started to work with like spinning glass and whether or not the glass was spinning, (laughs) you know, and all that, which was fun, but it was a nightmare. And then DSLRs came out and they're like, oh shit, now I've got depth of field. And that became really something interesting. And for years I was doing music videos with like, um, old uh, uh, Master Primes or or, or um, uh, old Super Speeds, uh, spherical stuff. But I was always in this position, and we were on the East Coast, so there wasn't like yeah. a plethora of like – no one had anamorphic lenses in rental houses on the East Coast. And it wasn't until I did a music video for Zarface and we did the sequence – that's a torture scene sequence a la Lethal Weapon. Remember when Mel Gibson was getting electrocuted? <laughs> and I, that was the whole theory. And so we got our hands on some heavy hawks. So we had some like hawk anamorphics 
that we had to get an insane insurance policy. They shipped them across the country. And I remember putting them on. And prior to this, I would do so much work with the old spherical lenses, with lighting and smoke machines, desperately trying to make it feel like any sort of familiar thing for me as far as cinema was concerned. And I put on these anamorphics and I hadn't even finished lighting yet. And I put the anamorphics on and I went, this already looks like a fucking movie. I love that. I mean, it, throwing back to the video cameras, like um, some of my first camera work was filming my friends skateboarding. And so when you're starting out, you're like, what is it that I have to offer as a cinematographer when, yeah. you, when you know nothing? Yeah. You're like, well, there's a zoom rocker here. So I'm going to, I'm going to zoom for sure. Cause I can, I can touch the buttons. So it's some, something I can add to the shot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so many zoom in and out, unmotivated zooms, no reason. Yeah. Um, just, you know, you don't even have a focus knob on a lot of those early video cameras. So you know. you're like, uh, what can I do? Yeah. To, to do something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but then you realize later lighting is, is everything. Yes. And then, and then you realize, well, once you master lighting, you know, you painted the picture, but then how are you going to make the picture compositionally better in addition to that? Cause mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's two important, re really important steps. And I will say this about lighting. Lighting was one of those things when I was younger that just felt like magic. Like it was, it was one of those things that I couldn't tangibly wrap my head around. I'd pick up like old books, like old lighting books and manuals, and it got really sort of fucking technical. And I'm like, I don't, I don't even have a point of reference for what this technically means. And uh, it took me a while to really sort of wrap my head around the practical nature of lighting and how there are some rules that you can follow. There's sort of like a structure that you can follow, and then like I found my sense of gravity with it. And really what it was, was I spent time going like, I just want to understand how light affects a face. And so I was just shooting portraits and I was taking bare bulb light bulbs and moving light around subjects and building stuff within portraits. And then realizing, ah, this is how to build depth. This is how to build dimension. What happens with color? What if I start bringing color and now I'm doing contrast with color. Now I'm building even more depth with it. Because at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is take like a two-dimensional flat image and make the audience believe that they could put their fucking hand into it, that it exists in the world, right? I mean, I, mean, I think it even goes further back than that. Like, to me, artists, were experiencing the world differently. So for me, I'm walking around making movies in my head every day. Uh -huh. But then you don't really know how to take your experience and then convey that to other people. And so I think, in a way, movies are a way of psychic communication. Yeah. So we're like capturing these ideas in our mind and then how do we take those ideas and then transmit them visually to other people? It's, it gets a little weird, but um, lighting, you know, we experience it. So it's, it's somewhat intangible, right? So we're sitting in your studio here and there's like this beautiful window light edge lighting you and there's contrast built up in here because you have some dark stuff on this side of the room and it's just like oh this looks beautiful like <laughs> if i had my camera i have my eyes but if i had a camera i'd take a picture yeah and then you know as artists i think we're building those pictures that we remember and then we try to think how can we how can we share those experiences or even the things that we start to imagine based on what we see so yeah. it starts with that perceptual magic as you said there's like a magic to the perceptual side of it and then how do you recreate that and that's that's where like creating human-made lighting 
comes in, but nature is the best gaffer. You know, we we see this fantastic stuff before aware of it and kind of open to it. And then trying to recreate it is, uh, it's chasing the dragon, right? Yeah. Sometimes daunting. Sometimes (laughs) you're like, fuck, it's all in theory a lot of the time. And then you get there and you're just like, "Eh, why does that not feel right? Um, yeah, man. Yeah. And if you want to like, we go even further down the nerd hole with this. Like, I think that for me as a director, what I'm trying to do as I get older is experience life things, experience moments where like I'll get into a fight or we'll go out and have some beers and we'll have a great time having beers. And I'll just try to be aware in in that situation, like what am I seeing? What am I smelling? What am I hearing? What is it that's going to get locked away? That's going to stimulate this sort of nostalgic vibe for me later. And then with the 20 years of filmmaking that I have, what are the other places that, what are the other techniques that have been used to stimulate something that feels like that? And so how can I start to utilize, is that a dolly push-in that makes this feel emotional to me? Is that um, a specific lens that is doing what our eyes automatically do? Because we see anim- we see wider than anamorphic, but we have this ability to like hyper focus in the middle of that as if we're punching in with like a, like a long lens. Our, our region of interest. Yeah. It shifts. Right. But like, you know, that's a big part of anamorphic imaging. I, I'm glad you drew to it because um, to me, the reason cinemascope was created partially was uh, to, you know, it's a two times coefficient. So what you see left to right is twice as much as you do vertically. And I, I believe that that's because we have two eyes if we're fortunate enough to have, both two, eyes two working eyes, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No. So it's inherently more more human and, and feels more relatable as a person. Yeah. And I think that's what's interesting about a lot of the older anamorphics is that you start to have that degradation that happens off on the edges and you start to have like oftentimes sort of distortion and softness that happens, which to me subtly replicates what's going on on the outside as I'm staring at you from the point of view. Which is kind of cool. Like it, it just feels comfortable and feels sort of natural to me. Instead of like a lot of the new stuff that's on the market right now, where everything's super fucking sharp and everything's super in focus, I get pulled out because I'm like, I, I never see that way. Like most of my, if we go for a ride in my car right now, you're gonna stare through like a bird shit covered pit pitted windshield, <laughs> you know? Uh, and that's how I see stuff. So when I start to see the stuff that is like super super hyper real super sharp it's harder for me to get into it it conveys a different feeling it's like um maybe it's like peaking on acid i don't know yeah <laughs> not if, not speaking from experience if, at all if rick was here we could get deep into that. <laughs> but yeah man it's crazy mm. and what i i think what i was going to get to was that i just helped a friend last week two weeks ago light is short. It's been a while since I've just gone on set and was just a gaffer, which was fun to do. And you go into this space and there's uh, someone else that's shooting. He's younger shooting with lenses that I hadn't shot with before. And you get there and luckily I've got the time. And so I can be comfortable when, when you set up lights before you look at it through glass, oftentimes it looks like trash. And when you're putting these things out there, you're like, okay, the angles are correct, but my eyes have like the ultimate, you know, exposure range that like, I'm not seeing what this glass is going to see. And, you know, what is this unit going to look like in a piece of glass that's running at an F4, you know? And it's, it never really comes together for me until you put the glass on it. 
yeah, our human dynamic range is just so different than even the best cameras these days that um being in a lit set is kind of weird isn't it yeah yeah until you see it like for me until i see it through the lens then my head for some reason it's almost like i then set all those settings in my mind and i go okay i, I see it now and so then i can walk through the set and, and tweak things but i have to see it through the glass and i have to see it through the perspective that that glass is giving me and it all really comes back to that day on that set when we're doing the torture scene and I brought out those anamorphics and I saw how something that I would light for sphericals looked completely different with these anamorphics. And I'm like, okay, I can trust. So that, that's why I get really hyper-focused on what glass I'm using because I could trust it at that point and go like, okay, this is the look I'm going to get. Even though my light looks like shit right now, put a lens on it. Let's see what it looks like. And throwing back to what you were saying about lensing being so subconscious along with the lighting is um for me the film punch drunk love is the first time i became mm. aware of the lens as a character in the film and and that this is different and yet the same uh and that's that's robert ellswood asc's work on uh punch drunk love with paul thomas anderson mm -hmm. and adam sandler mm -hmm. which you know it's interesting to look back at that film being Adam Sandler's first serious role and then uh, seeing Uncut Gems recently also, which is another anamorphic film. So yes. you, you know Adam's serious about filmmaking when he's in two uh, kind of bookends in, in a story yeah. in a way. Yeah. Um, the same guy that's doing Happy Gilmore. <laughs> he's one of my favorites. I mean, I think hands great. down. Yeah. But uh, but that film made me realize, okay, a lens can be a character. And then, and then I started questioning, what is it about this particular lensing that makes this film reminiscent of my favorite films like Raiders of the Lost Ark or mm -hmm. Empire Strikes Back or Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And then I realized the thing they all have in similarity is they're on anamorphic lenses. Mm -hmm. And so that set me on the path of wanting to know why do anamorphic lenses exist? What what are these lenses and why do they exist? Well let's let's get let's get into that because I think a lot of folks don't understand the history of anamorphics. Like why were they originally created? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So like in the course of researching all this, um, I've come up with a theory that there are three spheres of influence in filmmaking, and I'm sure this is something you can relate to. Uh, there's commerce, which is the financial engine mm -hmm. of making movies. There's technology. Our, our art form is an inherently technical one. Without technology, you know, the lowest form of technology we could use would be scratching the celluloid with a stick right yeah but your celluloid is still a technology yeah and then running it through a projector is still a technology yeah. so it kind of always relies on technology prior to that even you know a puppet show in front of a lamp you know it goes back to plato's cave right like we have a fire we're in a cave we're casting shadow puppets that's still sort of a technology fire fire is technology yeah yeah, right? yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and then uh the third sphere would be artistry you know what we bring with our imagination as creative people mm -hmm. um the human component really um all of them are pretty human but um those three spheres of influence are inextricably linked and connected in ways that we can't even possibly fathom unless we start pulling the thread of the sweater and this next thing you know there's no more sweater right <laughs> um but yeah the reason anamorphic lenses were principally created um is a financial challenge that the studios were facing where people were no longer going to movies 
as much as they once were. And so the the studios and the theater chains, which were inextricably linked themselves, uh, were saying people are staying at home and microwaving TV dinners and watching TV instead mm-hmm. of coming out to the theater and buying hot dogs and popcorn and, uh, you know, bringing their whole family, they're staying home now. And so our way of life is being financially threatened. Um, so they said, well, you know, we've got to do something spectacular because if you look at the history of movies, spectacle was always a huge part of it. Um, even those early films where, you know, the train is coming right at yes. the screen, yes. people think they're going to get run over by a train. It's sensational. And then, uh, People are talking about it, right? So it becomes water cooler talk for everyone. Did you see when the train almost hit us? I thought it was a real train. We're screaming. It was crazy. It's it's an experience, like yes. you were saying earlier. Yes. Um, so that experience, you know, sticks with you, and you want to share it with other people, and and it becomes part of our social fabric, right? Um, and so the studio chains were going, the studios and the theater chains were going. We got to do something that's spectacular to create this uh, sense of excitement and get people back to the movies. And so that financial engine drove a technical solution, which was to create a panoramic movie. Mm. So they would take three cameras uh, and put them in an array and then film a scene with three cameras, like creating this panoramic view and stitch it together and project with three projectors. Right, so they'd stitch it in the projection itself. They'd align the projectors so that it was stitching the scene. Exactly, they'd have to line up the cameras, yep. run three times as much film, and then project it. And uh, this is what is known as Cinerama. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for anyone that's been to a Cinerama dome theater, it's curved because you have the curvature, the three lenses, and you want to kind of wrap it around to make it optically look the best. Um, and, and, you know, you have to pan your head to see everything that's going on. So you feel like you're there. It's an, it's an early form of virtual reality. I would, I would argue. Yeah. 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 Um, that's cool. And so you go to the theater and you're rat, you're, you're enraptured by, you know, Ben Hur traveling from this side of the screen to this side of the screen. It's amazing. And, um, thankfully that proved to be financially viable because what I've heard is that, um, Cinerama screenings were booked for two years solid from when they introduced it so they proved that there was a financial viability to having this as a spectacle Mm -hmm. but the problem was the bean counters went and said you know three cameras (laughs) three times as much film at least (laughs) more crew yep uh synchronizing this is a nightmare the theaters don't want to retrofit with three projectors for every screening room. I mean, the, the projector people loved it. Uh, everyone else said, this is crazy. We don't, we're, we're trying to make money, not spend money. Yeah. So Fox and 20, 20th century Fox and uh, Warner brothers said, well, you know, there's a solution out there. There's a technical solution out there that we could use just a regular single camera and a single projector and still get a widescreen picture. And, um, People had kind of forgotten about this, but um, Spiro Skouris, who was the CEO of Fox, his assistant had taken detailed notes when they'd gotten a pitch from a man in France named Henri Chrétien. Hmm. And Chrétien had developed a thing called an anamorphoser, which was a adapter that you'd put in front of a single lens, or in, in their case, they started with a periscope. So they'd have a single eyepiece periscope in a tank in World War I. Uh-huh. And their problem was, hey, we need to know if people are coming from the left and right of the tank and they're going to throw a grenade at us Uh so, you know, we don't get killed. Uh, And so he'd come up with a solution of creating this device that would go as an attachment in front of the periscope 
and you could see twice as wide left and right, know who's coming and know what to do to evade, you know, hot action in the military sense. Oh no shit. I never knew that. Fascinating. So he'd pitched it for movies after that. And, you know, people kind of disregarded it because it was just, you know, oftentimes we're presented with a technical solution to a problem that doesn't exist. Like, right. look at this technology. It's going to change everything. Do we need to change everything? <laughs> mm, I mean, maybe not. I don't know. But, you know, I, I love looking at each side of these spheres and seeing what's there because you never know yeah. what's going to happen after after you start digging into things. You're often surprised. So if you asked me 22 years ago, do you think you'll ever manufacture lenses? I would have said no, I don't, I don't think that's possible. I think that's, uh, that's crazy talk. <laughs> and then the more I pulled at this thread, the more excited I got and uh, made so many discoveries and met so many interesting people and learned so much. And, and to me, that's what it's all about is learning something new every day. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you saw um, the Fablemans, mm -hmm. but that was my favorite film I've seen this year so far. I, you know, there's been a mixed bag from everybody, but it reinstated why I love cinema and why I love making movies when I watched that film. Yeah, I doubled down <laughs> after that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just that bit, uh, spoilers to everybody listening, if you haven't seen it, go watch The Fablements. It's now, I think, on some streaming service. So if you were too lazy to go to the cinema, you can just sit at home and watch it. Uh, but that moment where they were doing the World War II piece, and he got the muzzle flashes. And the fact that they went out of their way to sort of explain this thing, which I'm sure goes over the head of most people that are watching that movie, but for him to go like, we put pinholes in the film. That was like, great. Genius. It's a movie for filmmakers, but hopefully other people can relate to it too. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's, there's a bit of a, a family thread in there that might pull you in, but for filmmaking, for sure. And the, there were moments like when he was screening that to – uh, the people in the uh, in, in his Boy Scouts camp and like the, how that felt and how it felt. Oh, to be it was there. awesome! Yeah, I'm like, oh, I remember when I did my first screening in front of people. Like, it's really cool, man. Yeah, yeah, I love that movie. And I, I, I love him too. I think like he's <laughs> besides you know we're talking about anamorphics, but I think that Spielberg and his playfulness and his uh, inventiveness. To just use a like a camera, all the basic elements and what he can do with that made Jurassic Park what Jurassic Park is for me, made Indiana Jones what Indiana Jones is for me, you know, down to the point where other people do it and you go, what's the formula that's missing from this is the inventiveness, is the fun, is the Spielberg aspect of stuff. To me, that's the true American spirit, no matter where you are from anywhere in the world. I mean, it's about taking things not being afraid to be scrappy mm -hmm. and then being a little bit silly and playful, but poignant at the same time. And that's, yes. that's, that's the shot in Freud of life, right? It's like, it's comes full circle. So you get the whole human experience. Yeah. Yeah. And being an artist, there's nothing better than like being confronted with a problem and a problem that I think a lot of times people think that if you have money, you just throw money at the problem. But for when there's a desperation and you don't, then you're like, well, why don't we just turn the fucking camera around and throw a sheet over you, and we'll have that be a silhouette on the wall. And then we don't have to do the monster shit. But we're good <laughs> to go. And then you look at it in the monitor, and the magic that happens between the light and the lens, and you see it on the monitor, and you go, okay, I'm only going to use five frames of this. Those five frames look amazing. And everybody goes, whoa, and everybody puts their hands up. Because now you've done something out of nothing. 
imaginative wise. And it goes back to the old, you know, candles in the cave and the shadow puppets on the wall. And you're like, I'm still telling that story. And I was able to circumvent all this other shit. Like, and, and then I, I feel like when you start getting this, me going on a tangent here, but when you start getting into like a lot of like the new CGI stuff, it changes from that. Like you, you have a problem. And instead of going, what if we just turn the camera around and do this thing? It goes, all right, I'm going to email 40 people <laughs> down this chain and go, all right, I, I don't like the way that that shot looks, uh, you know, compositing department. And then it just runs down this chain of folks. And you just feel so distant from that moment with you and the camera and what's happening. To, in front to of tie it. that in, it's like, uh, we're going to need a bigger boat, but once you have a bigger boat, it's harder to turn that boat around, right? So you can do so much with that bigger boat with, with computer graphics. It, you can do so much, but to steer that boat can be a big challenge. Yeah. It's funny that you brought that up too, because I had heard the story from uh, Tony Scott about Tony Scott having to try to turn the aircraft carriers when he was doing Top Gun. <laughs> <laughs> and how difficult, how expensive it was for him to put the sun in the right place. Mm. There's rumors that he just pulled out his own checkbook. Literally. <laughs> Spin the ship, please. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, all right. So, this so guy. So, coming back to this technical problem. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. So, this guy who built this thing for a tank created this ability to see wider, right? Yeah, he'd pitched it and people said, well, we don't really need that for movies. But thankfully, someone was listening. It was the assistant to uh, the Fox CEO. Mm -hmm. And some of the guys were, from Warner Brothers were listening too, but they were kind of like, ah, whatever. We, you know, we're not as interested in investing in the technology. But the Fox people were really interested in investing in technology to create sort of a monopolistic cornerstone, right? If, mm -hmm. we, have, if we have the technology, we can be the masters of this domain and then we can make money from it. Which seems to be the thing that a lot of people do in this industry. Oh, you got, hey, every industry, you yeah. got to have, uh, if you have the technology, you can influence finance, right? So yeah. going back to those spheres. So thankfully they were interested in investing in the technology and notoriously there was a race to get to France to meet with Chrétien, huh. the, the anamorphosis sort of creator. And, uh, buy out the license to do this type of lens uh, for America. So they, the people from Fox won the race. They licensed the technology uh, and put it to work and called it CinemaScope. So, you know, this is a case of branding being a fantastic thing because you hear CinemaScope and you go, wow, that sounds special. Huge. Yeah. It sounds big, right? Yeah. Um, so marketing really won and the technology was pretty cool, but, but primitive in a way. So you'd take a regular prime lens, you know, they'd mostly be using uh, Baltar lenses from Bosch and Loam. Mm -hmm. They'd put this attachment in the front and then camera assistants would have to focus the regular prime lens and this anamorphic attachment at the same time. Oh, wow. Yeah. So needless to say, they loved that part of the technology because it was so easy to keep them in sync. Yeah. No, it wasn't. It was, <laughs> it was a nightmare. So they're, you know, they're pulling their hair out at dailies going, uh, why is this not in focus? And they're going, well, I'm doing my best with these two little levers to steer this tiny forklift and it's just not doing what I needed to do. Um, but they did manage to make a few movies with it. And one of them was called the robe and the robe did really well at the box office for the time. So they had a, a, proof of concept that, you know, people will go see a movie in a new format and it doesn't have to be Cinerama and it still feels magnificent and large scale and, and immersive. Yeah. 
Uh, so people were going to the movies to see that movie and they said, well, we have financial proof that this is going to be a good business move. Um, so they did what they could with that technology and camera assistants, you know, and, and DPs, the artists, uh, said, you know, this is not great. Yeah. It's, it's creating schedule problems for us, which are going to be financial problems for you soon enough. Right. So thankfully the people at Fox took note of what the artists were saying and said, Hey, uh, technical people, we need to come up with a better technology to bolster our potential financial success here. Mm. Uh, so they went back to the drawing board with Bosch and Loam and developed the CinemaScope Baltar. And this is an interesting case where again, technology was influenced by both the artists and the financial people. They used computers for the first time to ray trace the lenses and do the calculations on how to make them. So when was this? This was in 19, between 1953 and 1956. Whoa. So they used IBM computers, which were as big as the whole, bigger than the house that we're in right now and, the, and bigger than the studio, uh, <laughs> to run these ray tracing calculations. And today, you know, the first thing we do after talking about a lens design is open the computer and start trying to run some simulations and estimate what we think would make a good lens. And and at that time it was unheard of to use a electronic device to calculate this stuff. They were using paper and a slide rule hmm. and uh, they'd use something called a mercury line. And the mercury lines are um, standard lines for how light, rays would travel if generated by a mercury lamp because they were able to study that um, and, and do tracing of how that lamp would generate the the optical rays. Oh, no way. So they would have to do this all on paper and, and it gets to be a lot of calculus. Um, I bet. Yeah. I bet. <laughs> so in, in 1957, they actually won an Academy Award. Um, 20th Century Fox, Bosch and Loam and IBM together won a joint Academy Award for technology hmm. uh, for using computers to calculate the lens design. Wow, I didn't know that. Pretty neat stuff. Yeah, dude. That's wild. And so for the for for the audience that really doesn't have their head wrapped around how anamorphic works, is there a way we can explain how oh, it works? Super question. I'm I'm glad you asked. So the best way I could describe how an anamorphic lens functions is it's taking light rays and intentionally distorting them. And it's distorting light rays from the left and right side down onto a square sensor or a square piece of film mm -hmm. so that you're getting a wider picture in only one axis. So you're, it's like a wide angle adapter, mm -hmm. but for only one axis. Mm -hmm. And so if you looked at the negative or if you looked at what the sensor is seeing without any effects applied to it, it's distorted and made skinny. Yes. So everybody looks uh, super skinny. Yeah, it's like very tall. Back in the day, like there were some bad uh, VHS transfers of like old anamorphic movies that you'd watch it and everybody looked super stretched out and tall. And it was because they weren't T-squeezing. Yeah, they did the wrong telecinning process. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and then, you know, people ask, well, why, why would you do that again? It was to fit a widescreen movie on a regular piece of film. So it comes back to an economic right. and technical solution to a creative problem. Because at that point, you're not having to change the camera and change the width of the, the film itself. You're just changing the lens that goes in front of all of it. Yeah, it was the simplest solution to that technical problem that they could come up with. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, Occam's razor, it's like, well, we could have three cameras and three strips of film and do all this stuff and spend a ton of money. Or we could just try to use one camera, one projector, and then just put this lens in the middle yeah, and uh, end up with the picture that we want. Yeah. Super cool. Super cool. And so then, 
when you had to project that later in the theater, you would have to have like a piece of glass in front of the projector that would de-squeeze it, correct? This is a great, yeah, this is a great question. So essentially the same anamorphic lens type could be used, uh, especially with Chrétien's original design. So you would use the same optic for really? the capture and the projection hmm. um, because it's doing the same thing just in reverse. So your light rays are coming in uh, and getting squashed down. And then when the light rays are going out the other side, they're getting stretched back out. Hmm. That's super cool. <clears throat> so yeah, that's that's how anamorphics work. And I know that because I get asked this question all the time, like what's de-squeezing and how does this work? If you understand the principle of it, and it's super cool knowing that it comes from a dude that was trying to make it easier for people in a tank to see their Just enemies. people to survive, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's super cool to know that that's where it comes from. But you know, it's crazy. There's even a uh, history of this concept dating back to ancient humanity. So um if you look at some of the artwork that's in large chapels, uh, that is in an, in and of itself anamorphic in the sense that um, when it's painted, it's stretched differently. So that if you're viewing it from one part of the room, it'll look normal. But if you looked at it linear and head on, it looks strange. Huh. So it's it's stretched out for the perspective of the viewer. Oh, so they would paint it stretched out just for like one specific yeah, angle? Yeah, depending on where your perspective is. So you can oh, you, you can see different instances of this. I can share uh, an article about this with you after the yeah, yeah. after the recording, and you can share it with your listeners. Um, and then in ancient China, emperors would actually have illicit artwork done. Uh, shall we say it was a little bit blue uh, or erotic. <laughs> so you'd have some erotic or secret message that you'd want encoded and artists would use a cylindrically shaped mirror and place it in front of uh, their work and be looking at the mirror as they're painting so that it, when the painting would be done, it would just be, you know, look like a pattern, like pattern on the rug. Right. And then huh. if you hold up this cylindrical shaped mirror to it, you'd see the actual artwork decoded or <laughs> de de anamorphized. And it's the same principle of just, being distorted intentionally to hide or obfuscate something. So they would hide secret messages. They'd hide erotic artwork. Um, I love that. And then people, normal people, you know, lay people wouldn't be able to see it. They're just, oh, it's, you know, it's like a pattern, you know, it's like a cloud pattern. I don't see anything. Yeah, but you put on the special glasses. Put on the special glasses. And, you got it. You got it, dude. That's so cool. And it's like, who is the first person, right? Like, was someone like just staring through a piece of glass one day and just going... Hmm, I can do nudies with this. <laughs> like, like, who's the first person? Oh, it's just so human, right? It's yeah. such a, it's a, it's a human thing. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, probably somebody saw something reflecting off something else and said, "Oh, that's kind of weird. I yeah. think I could use that somehow." Yeah, nature. I love that, man. But that's our business, right? That's our industry. Is someone looking at something and going, "Like, huh? That's what you built that for? We can reuse that for something else. Where, where you start is rarely where you'll end up. And that's uh, that's why the talk that I typically give about the history of anamorphic lenses is called uh, Commerce, Artistry, and Technology, Third Order Consequences of the Cinematic Kind. <laughs> so, you know, you start one way and by the end of it, everything's completely different. Yeah. And you never knew where you were starting. You're in a completely different place. So cool. And, it, you know, and then fast forward to now, right? So we've had, you know, however many years of, cine of uh, you know, Cinemascope and Anamorphic. And now as, you know, a cinematographer and as a director, 
at this point, the stuff that I'm always hunting for are all these like aberrations and uh, strange sort of warping things that came from those lenses at that time period that are completely stamped onto Indiana Jones and completely stamped onto these movies um, that there's a piece. And I think in its purest form, I think that's where the flare stuff comes from and people's obsession with the flares. Absolutely. And there's, there's another piece in there about um, the projection. So you're getting about, you know, in the theater, we're going to need a projector lens to show this. And so this is kind of the advent of Panavision because mm-hmm. There was a shortage of anamorphic projector lenses, but everyone wanted to show a cinemascope movie in their hometown, you know, whether you're in Taos, New Mexico, or upstate New York, or Maine, or Boston. Everyone wants to show cinemascope movies in the in the 50s and early 60s, and they just couldn't make, Bosch and Lohm couldn't make enough anamorphic projector lenses to satisfy the market. So Panavision stepped in and came up with a solution to make anamorphic projector lenses that use prisms and so they could make them cheaper and faster and so they got those out there pretty quickly and then the cinemascope lenses had a ton of problems that were sort of second order technical problems that they hadn't predicted when they set out on their path so when you go to do a close-up of people people's heads mump out Mm -hmm. which means that they get less squeeze you know we were talking about distorting the picture down to make it squeeze right but when you go to close focus at like say four feet which was like crazy unheard of close focus for the lenses at that time. (laughs) By the time you get to that point, um, it's only like a 1.7 squeeze. So then people's heads would be all squatty when you projected it two times D squeeze because that's at a fixed projection ratio. Yeah. So they said, well, you know, uh, maybe we could put it in the projector lens. And then, you know, when the movie's going and they go to close up, you just flip this prism a little bit and and make it less D squeeze. And so that kind of worked sometimes to make people look, okay but they wanted to fix it on the camera side because cinematographers were complaining and actors and actresses were complaining i'm sure (laughs) and so you know they were meeting at bel-air camera in over here in bel-air and and um gotchlock who is one of the founders of panavision was like now all these camera people are complaining like we can't do close-ups of the actors and uh you know he asked his engineers hey is there a way we can do something about this and build it into the lens. So it's just, you know, one less technical step with these uh, prisms to try to change the ratio and all this. And they thought about it for a while. And then they came up with a way to take out astigmatism, which is similar to the way that we see if we, you know, if we wear glasses, you might have astigmatism, which just means that the horizontal rays and vertical rays don't focus at the same time. And that's a natural second order consequence of uh, anamorphic lenses is that you have natural astigmatism. Hmm. And so they said, well, we've, we've kind of solved this problem in the past ophthalmically for human vision. Mm-hmm. How can we apply this to the camera lens? Cause it's not that complicated for us to fix it for our eyes. Mm-hmm. So for a camera lens, it can't be that bad either. So they, they came up with a way using a similar uh, thing called Jackson's cross, which had been developed in like the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a guy named Stokes and then the Jackson's cross cylinder people. And, you know, when you go to the eye doctor, they'll hold a, a optic in front of your eye and twist it. And they go, oh, is this better? Is this better? Right. And, and that was a cylinder glass. And they thought, well, we could put these into the lens and integrate it and time it correctly with the focus. So they managed to do that and then patent it for movie lenses. And that was the advent of the Panavision auto Panatar lens, which became the dominant way for doing anamorphic imaging. Because you were getting solid close-ups without 
the squatting or whatever that would happen. There were a couple things that they did. Yeah. So one thing was not only solving that close up problem, um, but they made it easier for camera assistants because the different studios at this time, we have to be aware that the studios had their own camera departments. So there weren't rental houses per se. Every studio had their own camera department and they'd prep their own camera technology. And, you know, if you were going to shoot for, um, you know, for Warner, Mm-hmm. they'd probably have Mitchell cameras. Mm-hmm. So then you're stuck with whatever Mitchell camera system that they'd have available and everything would be prepped the way that it would make sense for their studio. And then you go to Fox and they'd have a thing called a, a rack over camera and you'd line up your shot. So no, no cameras typically had reflex mirrors. So you weren't even looking through the lens to see your shot. So, you know, we're so lucky these days <laughs> to have viewfinders. We're actually seeing what the lens sees. We forget about this because it's lost to the, history they have like a rangefinder or something basically it's like a you know you see the pictures of people holding their hands up with their thumbs out like in an l7 yeah you go "Ah, that's so corny like we don't make movies that way but they did at that time so you know they'd use a a goalposts basically to set the frame and they'd call that the lineup so you'd get your lineup by racking the camera over on its side out of the way look through the lineup and then you'd compose your shot and run the rehearsal without the camera. Then you'd rack the camera back into place and do the shot with the with the rangefinder. Fascinating. And so, you know, to the point about why were the Panavision lenses successful, the Panavision lenses were made to work with all the studio cameras. So if you had a Mitchell camera, you're good to go. If you were using a Bell and Howell 2709, you're good to go. And the Mitchell cameras had a built-in follow focus in the camera body. Mm-hmm. So they would make sure that the Panavision lenses would line up with the built-in follow focus so that assistants weren't going, well, you know, I love this, except my follow focus, it's part of the camera, doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And so they made it much easier to get shots faster, get set up, and get your day. Mm. And so it made camera assistants look good. <laughs> and so they loved to work with those lenses. They loved to work with the lens. It made it easier. Yeah. Fast. The rangefinder thing, I didn't know. It's, <laughs> it's wild, right? It's I wild. mean, we take it for granted that we have, you know, all these fantastic wireless monitors and an HD tap these days and all kinds of, you know, what, what we consider normal is beyond a luxury to what they were dealing yeah. with in those early days. And you look at those movies and you would never know because they just made it work with what they had. But so, you know, sometimes if you probe at it, you'll notice they don't get too close to the camera most of the time. So a close-up is still done from a far distance with a more telephoto lens. Mm-hmm. So there's there's traces of evidence of how it's working, but it's not as immediately apparent. You just get taken away with the magic of the storytelling, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's the thing I like to say about optics, too, is that it's the... Um, the intersection of the tangible and the intangible world. So people attribute anamorphic lenses as being magic. I'd say all lenses are magic, Mm -hmm. um, but it's really science. So science is the magic. Yeah, it's true. But it leaves us feeling mystical. So it's good. (laughs) It's true. It's true. It's true because it, it, it transports you. You know what it is? It's perspective. And I, I think that the power of movies and in this format or even photographs is that you're able to take somebody else's perspective, which is completely uh, influenced by like 
what's going on in their life, by their health, by everything that's going on. You see the world a very specific way. You see the, you see this all the time when you go out. There are the people that exist that don't see more than a foot or two feet in front of them when they're walking around because they're so hyper-focused on what's going on in their brain. Uh, you see it with drivers. Someone is just constantly looking at the taillights of the car in front of them. They're never looking for five cars in front of them. So life comes at them really quickly this way, right? With cinema, what you can do is you can change their perspective because you have absolute control over what they're seeing, how they're seeing, and wh what it is that you're presenting to them. And I think that's the magical element, I think, for a lot of people, where it's like, you've made me see the world differently because you have a different perspective on it. You're taking people on a trip, on a head trip, and yeah. it's, it's the closest thing we have to psychic communication. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of... Um, a ride and being kind of transported it makes me think of one of my favorite personal favorite uh cinematic experiences and i can hold for that no, that's uh, fine it's like this is a big we're we're in a natural element here i don't know what that was that but the microphones make that sound like it's like a baby huey that just started up out there someone's car with like uh <laughs> no exhaust it's kind of a pleasing tone I dig it. You know, there was a period of time that every car that started up sounded like that. I can kind of remember that time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I was a kid riding around in my little uh, Pontiac Grand Prix with like straight flow exhaust, I would piss my parents off every time I started <laughs> my car. <laughs> so, yeah, where, where were we? So I was just going to call back to, you know, one of my... I just have to share this. One of my personal favorite cinematic experiences isn't a movie in the traditional sense that we think of it. And that's uh, the original Star Tours ride at Disneyland. Okay. I don't think I remember this. Okay. I'm going to share the ride film with you because someone's preserved it afterwards. But it's a simulator ride. Mm -hmm. But they, they shot it with 65 millimeter film. And it was projected with 65 millimeter film. So if you go to Disneyland or Disney World now, they still have the Star Tours ride, which was, you know, a, a Lucas, Spielberg, and Disney collaboration before Disney acquired uh, the whole Lucasfilm catalog, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But you'd go on this thing, and it's, it's sort of the first in-person Star Wars experience that existed, right? So you'd go on this simulator, and the premise is that you're taking a space liner to travel to another planet for space tourism. But the craft you're on gets hijacked and you end up in the middle of a battle between the rebel Alliance and the Imperials. <laughs> and it is cinematically hands down. One of the coolest storytelling experiences ever. It's not what it was now. I, I hate to be such a curmudgeon, but it was a linear story. They mm -hmm. couldn't use any cuts so like the closest thing you'd ever do cut is jumping to hyperspace right mm -hmm. but it's meant to be you know because they were they were originally talking about developing and they're going oh yeah we can have this shot and then we have this shot and we cut here and we go here and then someone on the team from imagineering goes uh when you're flying somewhere in an airliner there's no cut unless you're taking a nap <laughs> so this isn't gonna work we have to make it seamless and um, so you're in this virtual reality simulator ride, no 3D glasses or anything, and they've got a 65 millimeter projector showing this beautiful, beautifully crafted um, VFX 
masterpiece. It's mm-hmm. nothing short of a masterpiece where you're traveling through space and you get hijacked and end up helping blow up the Death Star accidentally. You gotta send me this. Oh, it's fantastic. And there's a, there's a lot of funny and serious and scary and exciting moments. It's it's like the best six minutes of uh, filmmaking in my in my opinion, hands so, down. So so you're on this ride, right? So mm-hmm. you're you're basically in this transport ship. So. Is everything from that same perspective? Is that exactly what, yeah yeah, and you know the new one the new one I mean, look it's a hard act to follow, but the new one I feel like is just kind of pandering it's, you know it's fan service, and they do too many hyperspace cuts so they're cutting a lot so they forgot about the mission which was try to make this seamless no cuts yeah um, but the way that you transition into the storytelling moments is fantastic so in the original one you come out of hyperspace. And you're over the moon of Endor and you're like, oh, cool. We're like done with our vacation. Like nothing bad's going to happen. And then slowly you get stuck in a tractor beam. So you feel the whole thing shaking and then it tilts up and then it reveals, oh shit, we're stuck with a star destroyer sucking us into the bay. (laughs) And so that's just like, it's a magical moment and a magical experience. And and it really stuck with me. Um, It's part of one of the reasons I wanted to be a filmmaker myself. time to take a moment we're gonna take a break here even though this is a completely fascinating and crazy conversation and i'm excited to have it with dan but uh we gotta take a break and uh many of you here for lenses well let's also talk about tech shit right let's talk about gear let's talk about the stuff that i like the stuff i use maybe you uh, might find some of it useful maybe some of these tools will end up in your toolbox and uh, i say this all the time the tools aren't the most important part of filmmaking they're an important aspect, but they're not the most important part, man. You can make really great stuff with whatever you get your hands on. But as you progress, as you sort of find yourself hitting a plateau with what it is that you make, and like I did with, uh, you know, not shooting anamorphic, with me discovering like spherical was hitting a plateau for me. I needed something more. I needed to connect with it more. That's how I got to anamorphics. Same could be said about the type of computer you're using. The same thing can be said about uh, any of the pieces of equipment. Um, and so uh, I'd like to talk about the stuff that I use and see maybe if you'd like it. So supporting our show, as always, our friends over at Puget Systems. If you are out there shooting all this beautiful footage, right? You've got this 4K, you've got the 6K uh, anamorphic stuff, and uh, you're either running Premiere, maybe you're running Resolve. Uh, you need a beefy machine to do it. Now, yes, there are very expensive, um, very specifically manufactured computers out there by larger companies that are all about the unboxing experience. Um, And also, I don't care. Let's be real. One of the big issues I have with a lot of the Apple products right now, especially the laptops, is that everything comes made into the motherboard itself. And so either you're spending like the top of the line money Uh, with the hopes that your machine will last a little bit longer as the software upgrades and as the technology upgrades, or you're buying the affordable one, which you can't upgrade the hardware in. What the fuck? It's a total waste of money. You know what I mean? 
That's why I don't like those companies. Like, I want to build a machine that works for me. I want a machine that's upgradable. I want to just be able to yank a card out and replace a card and have this thing last me another three years, right? That's part of the fun. And so that, to me, is PCs. PC has always been a highly competitive world where all of the uh, hardware manufacturers are competing with each other. The price is plumbing on that gear few months, a few weeks after it comes out into the marketplace. So if you're that person that needs to get it right away, you're paying premium, but then you wait around a little while, check out the beta testing and the updates that go with the software. And you're like, well, I don't need the new one. I can get that old one and it works just as well. And now it's half the price, right? Competitive shit. You don't want your fucking shovel ruling the show, right? It's a fucking tool. You don't want to be a slave to this shit. You want to be in control of it. That's why I went to PCs. And I didn't want to build my own PCs when I'm running businesses, right? I don't want to be tech support for all my guys. Mike, that machine you built, it's not starting today. Why are we having trouble with this? It's not my job anymore. I wanted to find a company that did that for me. And Puget Systems was the place. I love these guys. They build insanely fast, insanely beefy machines with hardware that they're beta testing all the time. These guys love building PCs. They love the PC community. So even if you just want to build your own PC and you're looking for a resource, go to PugetSystems.com. There you can choose a PC being built by the software you're using. It's amazing. And their customer support is the best. So if you're someone that is running your own post-production facility, maybe you're someone that is doing uh, live Twitch broadcast, maybe you're someone that is doing virtual reality, maybe you're someone that's doing volume space creation and unreal stuff, these guys are at the cutting edge of all that tech. PugetSystems.com is the place to go. It is your resource if you're looking to build a new computer. Even if you don't buy from them, it's a great resource. Love these guys. They also love to drink beers. I love that about them. PugetSystems.com. Supporting the show, Fujifilm. I love Fujifilm. Now, why do I love Fujifilm? Well, Gene and I made the jump to their GFX series um, because we needed cameras that were shooting at a large format scale uh, and that were as susceptible to the light as the video cameras were because oftentimes we're pulled onto sets that are lit for video. And that means that you're setting your, your light settings for 800, right? And it's only 48 frames per second. And we're in a space where we're trying to shoot stuff for billboards and for buses. Normally that would mean low, low grain. That would normally mean that we're shooting medium format cameras, which are at 400 at most, right, for film speed. And then a lot of those medium format lenses are at an F4. And then we're shooting upwards of 120, 125 film speed. So the light that they're using on sets is useless to us. There isn't enough light. So we'd have to go in there with supplemental lighting and try to do that in the interim while they're moving to the next shot. It's impossible to do. And so we needed a camera that was very, very susceptible to low light um, and uh, would shoot such a beautiful large format image that we could use. Uh, and uh, Fujifilm's GFX, I think we have the GFX 100S. We love that camera. They have some sexy new stuff coming out on the marketplace. Um, their H-series uh, video stuff is amazing, and there, there's some big news coming. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it yet, but I've seen the stuff. They're making a real big push to become a large format, large chip camera that's affordable out there. 
And Fujifilm has always been known for their color management, right? I love their internal color settings that they have on all their cameras. So like if you want to shoot with their uh, film looks, they have really cool grain stuff for digital photographers inside the camera body itself. Um, but they've become a great motion camera. And they're, I'm telling you, they're going to be heavy, heavy, heavy competitors with the Canons out there, with the Black Magics out there. They're, they're going to be a big competitor. So check out the links in the description of this episode. I put up a few links, a few tra traceable links, which is important because when you click on them, they know that we sent you. We don't make commissions. I'm letting you know. We don't make commissions on the purchases you do. But if you are going to make purchases through Fuji, maybe you're going to look at the refurbished links. Make sure you click on the link because that link will tell them that you were sent there by us. And that's how we continue to have them around as sponsors. Make sense? So the, all the links are in the description of this episode. Go check out the new shit, man. There's so much stuff to talk about with those guys. So Fujifilm. Uh, may, maybe you're in, now you're looking to rent gear, right? We're talking about getting our hands on anamorphics, right? And <clears throat> that usually means that you're going through a rental house. So let me ask you this question. Who's your favorite rental house? What's the rental house in your hometown that you guys know and use? Are you afraid? Are you still afraid to go talk to rental houses? If you've been with me since the beginning, you know that I one of the most important parts of my job as a cinematographer or as a director and a filmmaker, a producer, is to make a solid relationship with my local rental house. This is the place I will go for the most cutting edge equipment on the marketplace. When I have clients that come to me and say, hey, can you make that look like euphoria? And I go, well, yeah, I got to find the fucking lenses for that. You got to go to rental houses for that sort of thing. Rental houses are the place to turn to if you're looking for training, if you want to get your hands on this gear, if you want to test it ahead of time. How do you know whether or not that lens is going to work for you? How do you know what the process is for that lens? How long it's going to take to change that lens out? You don't know. You got to get out and test. You got to get out and play. So who's the rental house that you guys go to? If you're here in California and you're not going to Boca Rentals, uh, you might want to rethink your shit. There are plenty of large rental houses out there, old school rental houses out there that have been around since the beginning. And who do those guys have relationships with? The big boys, the top of the line, the big filmmakers out there. So a big filmmaker shows up, they get access to everything before you do. They're a long-standing customer, they do high-profile stuff. So how does that settle for us young filmmakers? It's tough, right? You want to feel respected. You want to go to a place that wants to set up a relationship with you for the long term. That's how I found Boca, man. Boca Rentals is the place to go if you're a young cinematographer, if you're a young filmmaker, and you want to start a relationship. These guys are the shit. They carry all the lenses that you see on Netflix. They carry them. They have all sorts of access to anamorphics. I think they have Atlas series stuff. All sorts of stuff. You know, they're the only West Coast uh, distributor of Snorri Cam. You even know what a Snorri Cam is? Go to Boca Rentals and check it out. Film nerd. You know what I mean? Maybe you don't know what a Snorri Cam is. Go to Boca Film. Go to BocaRentals.com and see that. Go to their Instagram page, Boca Rentals. Um, a great resource for what lenses look like and how to use them. I'm telling you, man. Coolest shit out there. Uh, I love these guys. And uh, I've heard, I think I could say this publicly, uh, they've also opened up a, a new shop in Las Vegas. <laughs> 
cool stuff, man. Check them out. Boca Rentals. And for those of you just coming to the show and uh, you're feeling like the list of episodes is a little daunting for you, go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. I've curated all the episodes based upon subject material there for you. So if you just want to listen to cinematographer episodes, we reference Eric Messerschmidt. I had him on the show. Have you heard that one yet? Go to inlovewiththeprocess.com, click on the cinematography section and find them. It's all there, man. And that's where you can find supplemental material for each of these episodes. So I'll post up like behind the scenes photos, photographs from the people, uh, clips for trailers, all sorts of stuff will be there. And if you aren't yet subscribed to our show, and if you're listening to the show on Apple Podcast, scroll down, leave a review. Every review that is left puts us higher on the algorithm, then more randos sort of walk in, which is great. Randos off the street are great. That means we're doing our job right. It means you're doing your job right as a listener to a free show that all you have to do is just click links and do stuff like that. It's easy. All right, that's it. Let's get back to this conversation with Dan because it's got to get good. That's what I like about the, the cinema, right? Because cinema isn't always... It's not its not what current cinema feels like to me, which is like, let's, let's get a fast script written, let's get a bunch of dialogue scenes in there, let's shoot a bunch of dialogue scenes, over-the-shoulder coverage, basic, 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 and pump it out, pump it out, pump it out. I think that there's such a magical element with creating these experiences whether you're doing a nightmare sequence or whether you're doing getting stuck in a tractor beam and it, it doesn't need to be anything more than just basic like we have this a plus b equals c but watch how epic and adventurous this thing could be i think whenever as a filmmaker i'm always going back to those elements like how does this guy get up and go to the door? How does this guy go and do this? Like, how are we going to cover that? How do we tell this story visually of this person that has to go make pancakes? Like, what is the process of that? And it isn't just focusing on someone's face going, I got to make pancakes today. And then like staying on their face while I'm making pancakes. And this is great that I'm <laughs> making fucking pancakes. And I think that's a lot of what the content that we have right now. And I think it's very literal, right? Yeah. It's, it's a fine line between super, super literal exposition and then something that feels experientially collaborative where you let people's imagination fill in the gaps. Yes. And then, yeah, you want to be familiar enough that it feels relatable and safe, but different enough that you are transported to this other world for a short time. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's the prestige of movie making, right? It's, it's, it's a magic trick. So there's an illusion, mm -hmm. you know, you, and, and like we said, you think you're going one way and then all of a sudden you're going this way. Mm -hmm. And so that illusion, you know, we, we buy into the illusion. We're part of it. We're an accomplice to it mm -hmm. and makes it feel relatable and special and, and kind of enrapturing. It's what takes my heart. Yeah, man. And without your experience, without you experiencing and being a part of that, filling in the blanks, it doesn't work. No, it's very cut and dried and wrote and yeah. formulaic and not not just formulaic, but like sad. So, yeah, 
It's like, I get it. <laughs> I get it, man. Like you, you look at something and you go, all right, cool. We're going to get on this tangent again. We've heard this tangent a hundred different times and you're just going to deliver it to me. Like, how about you? What, what? Okay. So here's a couple and they're going to have a fight on screen. How many times have we seen that? That's been since the beginning of cinema, two people having a fight on screen, verbal fight on screen. But how did you, how do you see fights as the filmmaker? Like, what is your perspective? What are you paying attention to? What are you listening to? What did you walk away with? How do you remember that fight? Is it clear? Is it not clear? Like, what are flashbacks looking like to you? You know, instead of just going, all right, we have a flashback sequence in here. Let's do some water in front of the lens like I've seen on a bunch of cinema. Is that how you see flashbacks in real life? Like, how do you see them? Like, I haven't had any flashbacks lately, thankfully. So. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, like, if, when you listen to this show, I'm constantly talking about the visual language of cinema and how important it is to study that visual language and understand the visual language that comes before us, understand what that language uh, will automatically do to a viewer, right? So if they see something, how they automatically feel. And then how do you exploit that? That brings us right back on topic. Thank you. So yeah, going back to the anamorphic lenses and and then what makes them part of cinema today. So if you look at the history, the origin of anamorphic lenses is a story about format and making sure that we make money. And then where we ended up is we are choosing anamorphic lenses today for an aesthetic reason. Mm -hmm. There's no technical reason that we need anamorphic lenses. It doesn't matter for the format because with a digital sensor or with, you know, good film stock these days we can crop it to any aspect ratio we want and deliver whatever you want whether it's uh 14 to 1 aspect ratio or you know one to one mm -hmm. um we have all the options and so the reason we would choose anamorphic lenses today and the reason we make anamorphic lenses at, at my company is to be able to empower people with um a classic style of image making that all the flaws and tool marks from the lenses of your are built into intentionally yes. and, and embraced yes. um, with some new twists. So it's not just the old same stuff, but we tried to do something that pays homage to the stuff that came before, but with our own unique perspective and unique twist on it. Um, and so some of those tool marks that are part of anamorphic imaging that make us attractive to them are uh, oval shaped bokeh. So the out of focus areas are ovular typically. And uh, you have, aberrations you know things that are from a technical standpoint undesirable mm -hmm. um chromatic aberration where you know colors are fringing one way or another uh, either longitudinally or, or axially um or laterally so you know colors fringe out left and right or they they change color um fore and aft in your focus in in the z dimension mm -hmm. forward or away uh you have, cool. you have something called spherical aberration uh, where, you know, if you have a point source, like a star at an infinite distance, and you're trying to image that point source as a perfect star on the piece of film or on the digital sensor, by the time it gets through the optical path of all the elements that make up the lens, uh, it's no longer a perfect point. It's going to be a point with some uh, residual waves or particles of light that are dispersed and scattered hmm. and that creates sort of a you know what we'd call a halation if we're you know really into that but it's just a little gentle softness that repeats that pattern um in a radially symmetrical way so if you see you know if you see a lens that has a lot of glow 
um, that might be done either through a filter, which is creating a form of spherical aberration in the, in the system or the lens itself. Um, it's just not repeating that point of light perfectly. Hmm. And so, so then the light's just sort of scattering a bit. And yeah. The, the rays are dispersed. Um, yeah. you know, they might retain the same color, but they're, they're dispersed in a different way so that it's kind of a softened look. Hmm. Hmm. That's why you can see that, especially with a lot of older lenses, you get a couple lenses in the kit and you're like, oh, well, the 85 just has like this weird sort of soft glow to it. And exactly. And, and, you know, if you're looking at vintage lenses, um, Baltars and Super Baltars, like the vintage Baltars, in some cases, the 35 is better corrected for spherical aberration than the 35 Super Baltar, which has like a ton of spherical aberration. <laughs> I don't know why that is exactly that they ended up doing that but i i think it has something to do with the way that the the shutters worked in the cameras at that time so they were pushing it you know those those original cameras didn't have a mirror shutter so you didn't have to put it the lenses far away optically from the film plane and then when they introduced that reflex mirror shutter you'd actually have to put the optical system further out mm. to accommodate that rotating mirror mm. and so they're forcing the light rays to travel a longer distance to get to the film or, or later sensor. Right. And that, that can be fucking that, that, that screwing with your aperture setting and everything else, right? Cause you need to pump more light through it. Well, yeah, the aperture, I mean, you know, we think of an F stop versus a T stop, right? So an F stop is like the theoretical value of how much light is, uh, exiting the system and hitting the film plane. And then a T stop is like the truly measured value of how much light is actually, uh, hitting the traveling. Lens. Yeah. Going through the lens and, and hitting the film plane from the back of the lens. Oh, okay. So it's, it's the ratio between the focal length of the lens and where it lands on the film plane. Oh. And so, you know, this is, comes down to like a financial thing again. It, it always comes back to the, the, the sphere, right? The three spheres. So for film making movies, you're, you're going, well, you know, an F stop is like close enough for photography. Like we're going to get within a reasonable approximation you're shooting one picture maybe every minute. But for film, we're shooting 24 pictures a second mm -hmm. at minimum. And so if you're messing up 24 pictures per second, you're using a lot of film and that's financially problematic because you get to dailies. And, uh, you know, we were exposing for an F 2.8, but the lens is a T 4.5. So <laughs> the dailies are dark, dude. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what they'd say in the you know 1937 yeah, or whatever these are dark dude they take them out back and beat them up <laughs> hey listen here buddy. listen here buddy frankie take them outside teach them about that stuff all right mm. that's wild man that's wild but yeah all those aberrations uh you know distortion chromatic aberration spherical aberration oval shape bokeh the street flares like you were talking about that are so popular mm -hmm. um all of these are things that engineering wise and technology wise would be thought to be undesirable. Um, but consequentially artists love and embrace them because they're, as you said, imbued into some of our favorite classic movies. Sure. I mean, you go back and you, you know, once again, I go back and I think about Spielberg again and it's like, he's doing, you know, poltergeist and all he's doing is putting a bare bulb in a closet somewhere and they open that bare bulb. He knows that that bulb is going to like give you that anamorphic flare. And it's like the cheapest effect that you could possibly do. Like what's in that space? I don't know. It's like emitting this light ray that I've never seen in real life. Like what the fuck is this? That feels spooky, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
So it's clever. It's it's once again the artist understanding the limitations and how do I use those limitations to tell a story with it. And I think that's what's exciting for a lot of folks when they buy vintage lenses or they buy stuff that uh, has all this character to it, especially when you're working on low, lower budget stuff, where you're like, all right, I have a lot of tools at my disposal to like build something visually here that's interesting. And I think that's what comes with like really cool vintage lenses. Like I learned that doing music videos. Music videos, you know, I jumped on that bandwagon way too late in the game where the budgets were being slashed and, you you know, you're not going to have everything you need, enough time to do what it is, you barely get paid. Um, and so you are just sort of relying on lenses and lens tricks because at that point you're like, all right, well, I've got a camera, I've got lenses, I've got lights. How do I, you know, tell an interesting story with this? And then you start getting into the game of like lens whacking and, you know, rocking the lens off of its mount. And they're like, oh, that's interesting for heavy metal. Now I'm adding intensity because when I, <laughs> when I set up a, a standard shot of this guy who's going to play guitar, I just stuck it on tripod and went all right cool do your shit and the guy's over there and he's just doing this and you're like well that's fucking boring like how do i <laughs> noodling the guitar yeah yeah how do i make that interesting like oh shit well i want to shoot down the strings of the guitar okay what kind of lens do i need for that let's bring in magnifying glass now let's bring in diopters and like what's that look like that's fucking rad that stuff's inexpensive and then you, you sort of hit a point where you go well it still doesn't match the intensity yeah, you got to go, oh, <laughs> <laughs> so now you're handheld and now you're like, well, get it off the fucking tripod. And now I'm building his performance with my camera movement, which is a thing. And so now that's all part of it. I think that's exciting. I, I, you know, like there was that whole period with our parents that were like, you know, the MTV generation has changed the way things were cut, how fast the viewer can process edits. But I think that was out of necessity because, you know, you've got a couple, <laughs> you got a couple long-haired dudes standing on a stage, right? You, you don't turn on the light yet, and they just come in there, and you're like, you guys look like shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, somebody bring in some like ray lights, backlight them, and bring in a smoke machine. Let's cover up all that shit back there that we don't have any production design for. That's like my favorite Ridley Scott quote. He's like, just bring a smoke machine hide all that oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it's interesting to look at the curve of pop star trajectory in that early mtv era too because you know bowie was still super relevant in those early days yep and then bowie was there with andy warhol and you know those yep. guys in new york doing all that experimental film stuff Yep. and so i'd say that that's probably a big part of carrying that willingness to experiment and try things that are unconventional mm -hmm. um, to the spirit of that MTV generation. Mm -hmm. I'd say that's a huge influence in my work and my interest in filmmaking too, is that, you know, it's, it's the other, it's unusual. It's weird. Mm -hmm. It's taking us out of our day to day. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that kind of unusual experience is, is special and you feel like it's a safe space to be who you want to be. And, and, you know, the thing I like to say about filmmaking too, that, that kind of ties into this is, uh, filmmaking is prototyping. So that's that's part of how I hmm. ended up manufacturing lenses. Is What do you mean? Well, being on a film set, you are forced to make fast decisions. Mm -hmm. And there are risks that you're taking, but you have to take those risks in order to get your day done, right? Yeah. So prototyping for product is like, how do we figure out how to make this thing and get it done in a limited amount of time with limited resources 
and prove that it can work. And so in film, we're conditioned daily. Uh, well, we have this script that, that somebody said is what we have to tell the story as. And the director gets a hold of it and says, I'm going to add a little bit to that. I'm going to change that and interpret it. And then he gets to the camera guy <laughs> or camera people. And the camera people say, well, you know, this is the camera package we have. These are the lights that we have. This is the location that we have. How do we make that real? With what we got. And, and get it done on time. Mm-hmm. And so every take is a prototype for the perfect take of what you think it's going to be on the spec sheet, which is the script. Right. And so you're going to try, hey, let's try one. Yeah. Let's, let's try one and see what happens. Let's rehearse it. <laughs> and so you get very comfortable with taking risks, trying something, and then rapidly adjusting it to be the best that it can be. Because yes. if you don't, you're done. Yes. That's so, fascinating. Yeah. So, you know, like that's one of the most interesting things for me making lenses is seeing we have a lot of people on our team who are filmmakers prior to joining the team. And then we have a lot of people who are not filmmakers and the comfort level of people that were filmmakers before they started helping make lenses is higher for adversity. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're, we're ready for challenges. We're ready to take on problems and, willing to try different solutions that seem unconventional. And if people didn't have sort of the boot camp of being on a film set and facing all kinds of adversity daily, week in and week out, um, <laughs> the world is different. It's, it's, this seems tougher, right? So yeah. there's, there's sort of this, and for me, especially it's, it's like, Oh, this is challenging, but like I'm used to this kind of challenge. And in many ways it's uh, more relaxed than a film set. <laughs> <laughs> but there's also like a comfortability in that too, right? Because oh yeah, it's part of my fuel. I mean, I yeah. love it. I love getting thrown into chaos and then finding my way out of it. Me again. too. Me too. Me too. And there's such a high that comes with that. It's a buzz. Just, yeah, where you're just circling around and everybody's running around and it's like the place is on fire. It's not on fire. We got this. Like, sure, that's on fire, but this isn't on fire. <laughs> we can fix this. I love that, man. I love that about directing. I love that about making movies. That chaos and that that collaboration. And that comes to, I say that on the show all the time, for those of you listening. That comes down to also casting the people that you want to be on fire with. Those are the other folks that have that. I always I used to say this a lot when uh, when I was younger, that I felt like the movie business was such a, it was like a Western. It was so, it was so romantic, right? You'd have... Someone would have an idea. Someone would come into town with an idea and they'd go, look, I got this, we got this heist that we're going to (laughs) do. Right. And you're like, all right, well, I need a good cinematographer. Who's the cinematographer? Well, yeah, but not the best cinematographer. I need someone that's good with what we're going to deal with here because we're going to be hanging off the back of like a stagecoach. Can he do that shit? (laughs) You know, and you're like, yeah, I got him. Then you go to the cinematographer and he goes, yeah, I got this, but we got to pull in my gaffer. And he's like, yeah, you have a gaffer. He's like, he's the best gun in the West. You know what I mean? And you have, all these characters sort of come together for one job and you all like go into it together and there might be a little like peacocking and a little fighting in the beginning, but everybody finds their place. He He's the best gaffer, but sometimes a little drinky drinky. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he's also that guy. And then it's Seven Samurai, right? He's the guy that's plunging the sword in the ground and sitting there. He was completely committed to the entire thing. Yep. And he's the one that the entire audience loves. And you just remember these people. It's such a romantic thing. And I can go back to the very first projects that I've done and remember that lineup. Remember the cast of characters. And the first night you all sort of sit around and you have a beer together. And you're just 
feeling each other out. You get to know each other. And, and the people that you really connect with and the people that you really fight with and how long those relationships last. And it's it's rapid prototyping. You're doing it quickly and iterating and you go, this is my crew, this one. Okay, we're going to keep yep. these people. We're going to change these people out. Try it again. Okay, new mix is a new combination. Yep. And that's that's one of the most exciting things about making new products to me is trying new things, breaking them, getting back and getting back in the saddle and trying it again. Yeah. You know, next yeah. rodeo, let's go. Yeah. Yeah. What do we learn from it? What is that little accident? What do we thing? learn? Yeah. What do we learn? That little thing that we can pull with it. It's it's cooking too, you know. It's all it's all that stuff. It's any sort of creation. That's the stuff like when I barbecue, that's the stuff that's exciting about it, where you're like, the weather's weird and that thing's not getting hot enough today. And oh, why not? What what coals do we use this time? Ah. Expect the unexpected and and discover what's next, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's why our job's so fucking cool. Like it's <laughs> we don't always get paid. <laughs> if you want stability, it's probably not the best business, but it's cool as fuck. And I think that's the core of it. I think it's that excitement. You get off on it. And you're just like and everything else seems super boring. Like the idea of like going to do you like work as a banker or work at a, I'm sure that there's like exciting shit in their field, but I don't know. Not for me. <laughs> it's it's funny because sometimes I, uh, you know, I do fantasize about like a square job. Like, I mean, what I'm doing now is the closest thing I've ever had say, to a square job. Thing, yeah. But yeah, I think like, ah, oh, yeah, imagine that stability. Like, what would I do with that? And I think, oh, no, not, not for me. Not for me. There's this twisted part of me and it's super selfish and super cynical, but this is twisted part of me now because we turned our backs when we were kids, right? I remember being in the auditorium when all of the colleges showed up and they're like, what is the career? And then like your grandparents were like, you have to be a doctor. You have to pick this career, this career path. Go to school, get a, a diploma. Like it, it doesn't matter. Go for an arts degree, but just go to college because it will change your life. There's this twisted part of me now where it's like the people that had to go through that whole process and it's like, well, now I'm in line to try to get a job at Starbucks with my arts degree and mm. my fine arts degree. And at the end of the day, it's like, who are the most valuable people to us right now? Innovators, people that work with their hands still are valuable. Like the people that are making a ton of money are like contractors and people that are building because there's a whole generation that is allergic to that now, like using their hands. And then people that are innovators and really have that skill that we have from being on film sets. And I've used that same skill. Like you use it for lenses. I've used it for other for other things. And it's you walk into a place and they go, how are you so level-headed? It's like, dude, <laughs> I've been on some <laughs> shit. <laughs> this, this is nothing. Then you feel like uh, the two, uh, you feel like the two guys on uh, in Jaws, you know, comparing yeah. stars, you know? Yeah. You know, all my friends were eaten by sharks. You know, and you're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> it's a fun business it, it is very romantic and I, I'm happy that we're talking this way because I feel like that ties into anamorphics man I think that ties into lens choices is because it's so uh, romantic and because we do experience like these hyper real things as storytellers you start to respect and see the world in this romantic kind of way and for me that's what anamorphics were anamorphics were the closest thing to this sort of hyper real, like hanging out with rock stars and being on stage and doing all that kind of stuff. Like, sure, I could shoot that with my fucking iPhone, but that's going to look the same way 
that uh, me hanging out in my underpants and you know in the bedroom like, like now like right now like if I took a selfie right now that's, there's not <laughs> there's no magic behind any of that but these lenses added the magic I think the two most powerful things for me as a cinematographer on set were is volumetrics and uh, lenses the volume stuff is fantastic I mean you can't do everything with it but it's a great way to change, you know, it, to me, it goes back to, um, painted, painted backdrops. Oh, 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 it's yeah. just, this is the new painted backdrop. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you're talking about the volume, which is the stuff that we're doing for, uh, Mandalorian. When I said volumetrics, I meant like smoke and haze and all that. Oh, kind of stuff. that's also fantastic. I but mean, yes, this that plays in is, with matte paintings too. Yeah, Cause yeah, yeah. you know, if you got yeah. a matte painting and you throw a little, uh, atmosphere yeah. on it. Oh, wow. Yeah, dude. And the, the, the thing with atmosphere you set lights up in a space and they're there. Someone has to walk through them, right? And you go, that's how that edge works. That's how this works. There's a, there's a physical object that's that reflecting on light. Got it. But when you have smoke or haze in that space, you're like, I want to walk through that. Like oh, I can yeah. physically see that light. And you're like, I want to go through that. And then you just sort of walk through that space. You put your hand up and then you start to see it all. So it's like somehow you've able you've been able to take the painting that you would do for cinema and put it in the air you've taken the imperceptible and made it perceptible yeah right yeah 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 that's magical to me like on a set that's lit i'll just go eat my lunch on it like i'll just go <laughs> and like because it's like it's it's the reason why everybody goes to disney world right you get to be there and you get to be like you know, for those of you listening, I got to eat lunch on my 12KM set. And it was the coolest thing in the world. Russian and all sorts of stuff. That was fun. Like that, And I remember those moments. I got to walk around on all my movie sets. And I try to just take that all in. It's like, I'm the only guy here in line at this Disney World ride that will soon be tore down and will no longer exist. It will only exist on film. And I can tell you what it smelled like. I can tell you what it felt like. I can tell you if the paint was still wet. <laughs> I think that stuff is so cool, man, and romantic. That's, I mean, that's my favorite thing about Disneyland and Disney World is that in a way it's a way for all of us to become filmmakers. Like mm -hmm. even if it's not your bread and butter, you become a camera for a day. It's true. And you're traveling through these beautifully designed sets and you're making movies in your head and you're taking that movie home with you and it's your personal movie mm -hmm. and you're part of the action. So it's an immersive movie experience. And, and I think that, you know, that's, that's the whole concept that they were coming up with it. They landed so well. It's not just a carnival ride. You're transported to a movie yes. that you make with your mind. Especially now with the stuff that they're doing, you know, with the Star Wars stuff. I went and I did that Harry Potter one at Universal and I was just like, okay. And I'm a cynical fucking East Coaster. And, and you know, my girlfriend's like, I love Harry Potter. I go, do you? <laughs> She's like, we're going to go stand in line. I'm like, ah, great. And, but even the whole line process of it, and like, I don't know if you've done it. Oh, yeah. And like the the, the room with all of the, uh, the the moving pictures and the, like the clever way, because I was examining that. I'm like, okay, so they, they just took like uh, LED screens and stuck them in picture frames. But then they actually painted the texture on the front of them through like different types of epoxy and stuff so that it felt like paintings and you're like that's cool there's it's pretty special stuff yeah. yeah there's some really cool magic in there mm. i love this shit man it's so much fun when did you um when did you get into filmmaking so i guess you could say 
started with making skateboard films with my friends, which is, you know, I think how a lot of us started. Yeah. And then we'd watch skateboard movies. So all of the early girl and chocolate films, you know, the Spike Jones stuff. Yeah. And it's interesting to see, because at that time, you know, you would have asked like, is Spike Jones going to be a Hollywood filmmaker? And I think everyone in the world would have said, no, nah, this is just about skateboarding, dude. Or BMX. He was doing BMX before skateboarding. And I'd watch those films and be like, this is great because this is telling a story about what we do, but in such a creative and unusual perspective. Yeah. And so those early Spike Jones skate films really influenced the hell out of me um, because it was magical yeah. and also relatable. You know, we're, we're out there skateboarding, trying to do tricks just like these guys, but they're doing it on a level that's super imaginative and unusual and turning it on its head and irreverent, Yeah, you know, and, and also in a lot of ways paying homage to classic Hollywood, which I think influenced him. You know, there's parts where they've got, uh, in one of the chocolate films, they've got, Charlie Chaplin on a skateboard, right? Being played by Eric Costin. It's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So I think that that and watching films like, you know, all the Star Wars films, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that stuff made me say, wow, like the world can be magical and also technical. So Star Wars got me interested in technology. So I thought, at one point I thought I was going to be a computer scientist mm -hmm. and I would learn to program uh, basic programs on an Apple II, mm -hmm. which if you haven't experienced that, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, <laughs> it's just different, right? Computers are so different than what we experience yes. today that, than they were in like 1983. Dude. And then they were in 1995. Yeah. You know, then they were in like early two thousands. But you'd, you'd, you know, you'd power the thing on, it would beep at you and you'd hear a little. Yeah, and hope, the disc hope, is turning. It did, hope it did all that stuff the right way. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about Star Wars is that it's like, oh, okay, there's these droids that are like your friends, right? And like the computer was my friend. It's mm -hmm. like, I, I can, I can interact with this thing just like in the movies. So it's, it was like a bridge between this fantasy world and this real world. And we can kind of make our own fantasy and. I learned to program the computer and I'd just read everything I could about robotics and computers. And, and then I got into photography doing darkroom photography mm -hmm. uh, in junior high school, which like now that I look back, I'm like, that's actually kind of unusual to get kids in a darkroom with the darkroom chemicals and taking photos that early. But I think it's really valuable because yeah. it stuck with me and, and the process of, you know, developing the film with the chemicals and you have to be somewhat responsible or else you're going to really screw yourself up. Um, stuck with me. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that process of the darkroom photography mixed with, um, doing little skateboard videos with my friends made me realize how much I love making art instead of just clicking around on a computer. Yeah. And I thought, wow, there's gotta be something for me out there. And the more I looked into it, the more I realized, okay, like a cinematographer will be the person that's helping tell a story, but also has to be technically responsible to make sure it turns out right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, well, I got to, you know, like, like Spielberg says, what made you want to run off and join the circus? <laughs> <laughs> I love that part. Right. That was, that was the thing that stuck with me yeah. from that film. Yeah. And, um, 
just the allure of that. It's, you know, it's somewhat forbidden, but also somewhat admirable. And you're doing something that feels right and also feels a little bit illicit. Yep. And so I thought, oh, I got to figure out how to get involved in movies. So I just started asking around, like, how could I do this? And, you know, there wasn't a lot of information available. Like YouTube wasn't around yet. Mm -hmm. um, this is like in 1998, 1999. Mm -hmm. And my friend's dad was a key grip. And he was a key grip on Heat. No shit. So he worked with Chapman, Michael Chapman. Yep. And uh, I'd look at him and I was like, this guy, he's kind of like a pirate. And I'm kind of like a pirate. <laughs> this could be, this could fit. And, you know, I didn't even know how to ask him to get involved in doing what he did. And, you know, and, you know, a big union key grip and a 15-year-old kid, it's not easy to put a 15-year-old kid in gripping yeah. even as an intern but <laughs> yeah. i figured out okay if i go to a lighting rental house and just work at a lighting rental house over the summer that's kind of close to the camera so i worked at wooden nickel lighting oh i know wooden nickel yeah yeah, yeah, yeah yeah so like that's the big low budget big small low budget house in la that would rent to everyone you know how long ago was this that had to be in 2000 Probably 2000, 2001. So they've been around for a while. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they were around before that. Yeah, Like wild. before I was doing it. So, you know, I didn't know what what I was doing pulling together these lighting orders. What's a three for? <laughs> What's a cam lock? Yeah. And they're teaching me, okay, this is how you hold a C-stand, dude. So I did that uh, for a summer. And then I tried being a PA for a summer because I thought, okay, like I got to understand a little bit more about not just how rental house prep of lighting packages works, but yeah, what's the you know, every, everyone that would come in to pick up the packages, I say, Hey, I'd love to work on your movie if you need anyone to do anything. So I ended up getting a couple PA gigs doing that. And, uh, you know, how does Xerox some sides and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I watched how things were going being a PA and then I watched the lighting guys mm -hmm. and I go, okay, I like this better because, it's a crew of people. It's not just, you know, three people in the camera department. You got a first, second, and then DP. You got like six, seven, eight guys, and, you know, you get to light, and then after you do the lighting, you can be quiet and watch and observe how everything else is taking place. So it's a, right, it's a right. great learning opportunity. So I did everything I could to convince uh, this gaffer, Eric Forand, uh, hey, I should be part of your lighting crew. <laughs> Right. And this best boy was like a great guy named Owen Foy. Uh, sadly, kind of an alcoholic. We were all kind of alcoholics yeah, then, of but yeah. um, great guys. And they took me under their wing and taught me lighting and taught me how to be responsible in the lighting sense. And then got to observe how a film set works. And it's interesting because you look back at the trajectory of that and Eric Messerschmidt was part of the network with Eric Forand. And then, you know, now Eric Messerschmidt is a, oscar award winner he's on the show we had him on the show he's great yeah he's wonderful so i eventually ended up on his crew yeah as a third electrician cool and he was a gaffer at that yeah, time yeah. yeah yeah and um you know just slowly moving up the ladder of lighting right and learning and observing everything i could knowing that someday i wanted to be a cinematographer mm-hmm and so hold on so you were working on the lighting crew for multiple different cinematographers right were you always i mean you yeah. know you jumping from set to set to crew to crew non-union to union yeah and then eventually you know you get in the lighting union if that's your trajectory and which i did yeah so i was in iatsi 728 i have i think i have a 10-year pin 
So I did it for like around 10 years. Nice. Um, but the thing I observed, you know, th that's the key thing is like, if you want to do something, anything in this world, I think it helps to be observant and just absorb what's going on around you. Cause there's so many things you can learn something from if you just pick it up. Right. Mm -hmm. If you just watch, mm -hmm. I watched what the DIT was doing. And this is in the early days of digital with a Thompson Viper yeah. film stream camera. And I'm going, huh, this reminds me of the computer stuff I was doing. Cause I, I was something of a computer hacker. Like I was saying, yeah. Um, built a ton of PCs in like 1997, 98. Me too. Uh, okay. This guy, he's getting paid a lot more than I am. He's not running four aught cable. Like I am. He's not sweating. Mm -hmm. He's in an air conditioned tent. Not getting sunburned like I am. Mm -hmm. This is slick. He's closer to the camera. He's telling the DP what to do. Mm -hmm. Interesting. This is an opportunity. So I learned everything I could about digital workflows then, and then slowly started making the transition into becoming a digital imaging technician for commercials and music videos and smaller scale things at a time when, you know, people weren't really knowing what to do and do that. Cause the thing I realized after talking to that DIT, I don't want to name him. He's a big D DIT. Now he's one of Deacon's DITs. Okay. He's a good guy. Yeah. But watching what he was doing, I was like, I actually kind of know more technical things than this guy does, <laughs> but I'm pulling four out cable and, you know, lifting 18 K lamps and spending 16 hours a day doing it. And this yeah. guy's making more money. Oh, okay. I could do this. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I transitioned into being a DIT, and and um, a lot of it is actually dis digital asset management. Um, now they call it a digital loader. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you can be kind of the wizard of this because digital cameras are just computers. So if you know computers, you can kind of transfer some of that knowledge and then pick up new knowledge that adds to that. So learning is added if you just keep stacking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're, if you're conscious and you're listening and learning from people, you can just keep stacking that knowledge and building upon it. Yeah. I mean, that's key for any position, really, I think, in filmmaking. Yeah. So I took that access and that knowledge that I was growing and gaining and the connections I was making and then slowly learned how to transition into becoming a cinematographer and shooting smaller scale things like you're talking about using a, a Red Rock Micro mm -hmm. depth of field adapter and stuff <laughs> like that. Yes. And, and what's interesting around this time is um, I became more and more interested in still photography again, doing digital still photography. Cause I'd grown up with a Minolta film SLR camera shooting stills and doing the darkroom stuff. Mm -hmm. And I realized, okay, I can, I have a little spending money now. I can get a digital camera and start doing stuff without having a lab in my house, you know, cause I don't want to have a bunch of chemicals and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So I got into that and it, it became pressing to me that, you know, okay, this Canon 20D camera that my friend has and my Nikon uh, D70 camera, we can do this thing where we can flip the mirror up and you can see on the screen on the back what the whole sensor is seeing in real time. Wait a minute. We're getting a whole sensor readout and it's in real time. It's video. And we're messing around with these Panasonic HVX 200 cameras, which are like state of the art with a solid state memory recording. Whoa, we don't have tapes anymore. Whoa, this is cool. But wait, this thing is a big sensor. It's like a film strip. Yeah. When are we going to be able to record that right out of the yeah. 
right out of the mirror lockup. And then within a year or two after I'd kind of had this insight, I'm like thinking, how can we get it recorded off this thing? Cause it's, it's live. It's real time. We can just pull it off there somehow. Within a year or two that the Nikon D90 came out, which started recording video. And I bought that yep. immediately and said, okay, I'm going to start making little films with this. Yep. Um, so I was a big proponent and, you know, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I was, I was watching what people like Vincent LaForge were doing with the, the Canon 5D mm-hmm. uh, Mark II. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, like, that's cool. But like, I'm shooting an indie feature with a 5D Mark II. So I actually shot the world's first indie feature film on a Canon 5D Mark II. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah, that's not really a good claim to fame. It's not not a good film. No, but I mean, the image quality wasn't great, but it was, I was willing to take a chance yeah, before other people that's were. That's a big deal. Yeah. yeah. It was, I, I was a believer in this concept of a large format, larger format, you know, not a, uh, not a two thirds inch or one third inch sensor because it's closer to what we do with the film camera. Mm-hmm. And so I was willing to experiment with that and took some risks and made a ton of DSLR films and vid- music videos. And mm-hmm. um, it was part of my calling card as a, in the early days of me being a cinematographer mm-hmm. in terms of making headway in that part of my career. And so it was great. I, you know, I'd get Kit Rental having a camera like that. You know, other people were like owning red cameras. This is like 2007. Yeah. And I was like, I'll never afford a $17,000 camera. You and I were in the same boat. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> the same boat. I was like, that's, that's amazing. I wish I could get this. Like I'd be DITing on shoots with a red and be like, yeah, this is great. Like, it's really cool. I wish I could make a film with this. <laughs> But, you know, owning the equipment and making the kit rental was important for me because yeah. it, it made sure I could pay my rent and buy more equipment, right? So yeah. feed the addiction for gear. Yeah. I mean, it's, dude, the thing that it was very similar with me, man, I, I started shooting Nikon too. I had a, when I started as a, as a photographer, I knew this really great established journalist, David Binder, great guy. And I said to him, like, I'm in the, I'm going to buy a still camera. What kind of camera should I get? And he goes, get Nikon. And I go, why? He goes, you can charge more. And I said, okay. So I started with the Nikon. I went down the whole same path that you did. And for years, we were doing music videos on whatever we could afford. And it was like, oftentimes we're shooting mini DV. And I remember there was sort of like this chastising moment where, you know, we're doing music videos that are going on MTV, but we're shooting them with mini DV and we're shooting them with, like the old lens adapters, you know, the PS Technics or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so we shoot this stuff and we're looking at it like, we're not as good as these other guys. We're not as good as these other guys because we're just using like this trash that we've sort of put together. And I remember it broadcast, we were doing stuff that was ending up on uh, Headbanger's Ball. Oh, Headbanger's nice. Ball was still around. And it broadcast on Headbanger's Ball and it was like, there was something that was shot on 16 millimeter. There was something that was shot on 35 millimeter. And then there was our piece. And then it went continued. And no one noticed the difference. Everybody was like, wow, that piece looks really great. No one cared. It was this moment where I went like, well, it doesn't fucking matter like what it is that I'm shooting with. As long as I'm telling an interesting story and as long as I'm telling an interesting story visually and I'm setting the rules for my visuals, no one really gives a fuck. Most people at that time are still watching shit on TV VCR combo. So what yep. fucking difference does it make? You know, and I think that carried into my work as a as a shooter as I got more opportunity, right? And I remember the first shoot that I did with a with an like an Arri Alexa. It was like one of those cameras that was like, you know, you'd have to have a certain budget to have that. And it usually came with assistance and everything else. You'd have to be at a certain level. 
And I got my hands on it for the first day, and it was like, okay, here's this magic box that everybody says that is the shit to use. And I remember just booting it up and going like, that's it, huh? It's super easy. There's no big deal with this. And then I started to shoot with it, and I was like, all right, cool. It just feels boring, though. And so then all of the tricks that I was mm. doing with the smaller cameras, I'm like, can we do that with this? And then there was usually like an assistant who was like, well, yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, and I'm like, no, no, no. We, we should do that. And that harkens back to like old Sam Raimi, you know? Like you watch Sam Raimi do uh, an episode of, what was it? Ash versus Evil Dead. He did the first two episodes of that show, which I love. And he just shows up and it's like all perfect cameras now, all perfect stuff. And he's like, give me that fucking camera. And he just takes it and runs with it. And like, put it on planks. And we're going to run down the hallway with this thing. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's the magic. It isn't the tech that does that stuff. It's it's the the place that you're forced into as a young filmmaker and you're learning your language at that point. Take a risk, be wild with it. Yeah. You know, you don't have to be super placid and controlled. Yeah. And I think there's two sides of thought, right? Well, there's a lot of young like camera assistants that I know that have come up through that system and they're very sort of structured about stuff. And then when you look at their stuff as a shooter, it's very it's beautiful, but it's very structured in a specific way. And you're like, so you've never experimented before with this shit. You ever try <laughs> to take that fucking lens off halfway through the take and see what happens with that? And they're like, yeah, it's not good for the sensor. And you're like, but it's good for the footage. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe, maybe you should, you know? And it's it's wild, man. I think it's fun. It's uh, it's you you feel the same sort of parallel with music, right? Oh yeah, you know, someone that like lived in some shack somewhere and you know was playing like some built a fucking guitar they found in a trash pile and and someone's like how did you get that style like why do you play with your hands this way oh i was doing it the wrong way the whole time i had no idea the limitations become part of your language and your technical tool i mean the same is true for anamorphic lenses it's a ton of limitations yeah and then those consequentially end up being built into part of what you're making so it's you know the instrument becomes part of the music as much as uh the artistry yeah it's, it's part of it there's a lot of limitations that i've felt with anamorphics that have changed the way i've shot things like we talked before we started rolling i showed you some of the footage from the new movie that i used your lenses for which were gorgeous and uh i did another film called 12 cam i don't know if i showed it to you my russian movie and we shot that one with old uh, square front lomos oh sweet and uh my cinematographer david cruda that was on that with me he had them and they were, it was a movie that takes place in 1980s Russia. And these were like old Russian Lomo. So it felt really Super cool, cool. To, to do all that kind of shit. But there was a lot of limitations as far as close-ups were concerned, right? Because you had to have at least four feet, if not more four feet uh, to be able to get focused. And so then we started working with diopters and oftentimes we'd have like three, up to three, two or three diopters. Oh, wow. And now you have such a limited amount of range of focus and so then it starts to change your your coverage for a scene. So like an actor really can't step out of that diopter shot and you can't follow him as he moves over to this other thing. So now it becomes a two shot. And so- it Forces you to be more personal, right? Exactly. More, more uh, prescient and close. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, the, the Lomas are really interesting. I mean, that's one of the early things in my discovery of what anamorphic lenses mean that-, that ties into why I make lenses now. So like when I first in those early 2000s days, like 2001 started looking at what an anamorphic lens is and how it could have access to it. I saw Lomo lenses for sale for $500 and I thought <laughs> 500 bucks. 
I'll never have 500 bucks to spend on a lens. Oh my God. And then meanwhile, you know, 2015 rolls around and I finally got a little bit of money and I, I'm like, Oh, I could buy some anamorphic lenses. Uh, they're like $10,000 and they're, <laughs> you know, all the ones that are left in the market are broken. Everybody's bought the, the, good, the one. good working ones. Yeah. So, you know, for 10,000 bucks, you can get a broken one. <laughs> so that's part of why I decided to start Atlas to make the lenses I wanted to use, but couldn't really attain. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm not just saying this because you're on the show. I really like the Atlas lenses uh, a lot. I'd like, what, what are the, it's the Orion series of the ones that I would Those are the ones you borrowed, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I really like those. You guys have that new Mercury series that's coming out that looks pretty cool. Mm -hmm. I really like the Orion series though. I'm a big fan Thank of you. I mean, I, I like those not only because they're the first lenses we made, but they are classic lenses in the sense that they're meant to be like cinemascope. Yeah. lenses they they're, feel that they're two times anamorphic so they're meant to throw back to the original way that anamorphic lenses were created and why they were creating yeah i remember because we were sitting in your space and we were testing you had a bunch of cameras up with some of the new lenses and they had the orion lenses on i think we were talking about i think it's a 21 or 24 i can't remember which one it was but i remember just like seeing it on the monitor and walking through it and staging it. And I'm like, what pan that thing? And I'm like, man, this lens is so fucking cool. Um, because it does have a closer focus and it's, it's a, a great late, it's a great lens for a tight squeeze. And I showed you the shot, but you guys haven't seen the movie yet, but we shot this bit that was in a garage that had no space, <laughs> like zero fucking space, no room to put the camera back. And so we had to be clever and smart about, um, focus and depth and uh that was a big part of it for me that's why i went to you and was like i gotta try these that's a neat part of that lens is you you don't need to add diopters you can get down to about 18 inches from the sensor super cool and then you know because of the perspective of such a wide angle lens it's it's effectively a fisheye anamorphic lens you create such a sense of space even with a small space that the distance between people and objects can feel uh, much bigger than it really is. Mm -hmm. It blows it out. And then there's like a beautiful sense of like distortion too. And it, what it says about the character, well, the character moves through that distortion. And if you're doing that at the right moment, and we're doing it at a very sort of suspenseful moment that happens in the movie. And it really helps sort of push subconsciously the audience into that suspense of like, Oh, where are you going? You know, and it's sort of walking through that distortion. That was great composition. Thanks, man. I liked it. Because you, you do have to be selective with how you use a lens that wide. Yeah. Um, you can't just, you know, I mean, you can. You can do whatever you want. But to use it in a way that feels proper for storytelling, mm -hmm. you really used it in the right way. Can't wait. Can't wait for people to see the film. I mean, I just saw those clips, and I can't wait to see the film myself. Yeah, I got to shoot this little monster segment for it that I'm fucking excited about. I just storyboarded the whole thing. I'm like fucking excited about it. Um yeah, man, I got, I'm always going to be knocking at your door for stuff because. Great. We're in Glendale too. So come yeah. on, come on down <laughs> just right around the corner. Yeah, man. Cause you know, you, you, you talk in the language that I talk as far as cinema is concerned. And as we have this conversation today, I had this conversation today. I'm like, I get this guy now. I understand. <laughs> and it's nice to know that, that you're d designing lenses because, because a lot of the stuff that I see. And I'm not going to shit talk any new lens brands out there, but a lot of stuff that I see, I just feel like it's not it's not for me because they're really not referencing the stuff that I love, the language that I love. 
I mean, for us, it's just lenses by cinematographers for cinematographers is kind of our secret sauce, to be honest. Yeah, it makes sense, dude. It totally makes sense. I mean, because you're putting the tools in there that, frankly, are going to save my ass. <laughs> frankly, frankly, they're going to save my ass. When you're in a space and you're just like, you got four white fucking walls and two actors and no production design. And someone's like, will you make this feel cinematic? And you're like, all right, backlight them, please. (laughs) (laughs) Backlight them and get me a good piece of glass. Grab that 85, please. Let's see what we can do with this. Yeah, because it saves your butt, man. I mean, that makes me super happy to hear because all all we want to do is add something to the conversation of cinematography that leaves people feeling interested and excited about life and about the world. You know, like our, our motto is the world of cinematography in your hands, right? So that's really what it's about. It's just empowering people to do what they want to do and let them tell their story on a personal level. And then hopefully carrying that tradition, changing things for the better. I love it, man. I love it. I think we should wrap this up, but I love it. Thanks dude. for having me. Yeah, man. And, and if anybody wants to know more about your stuff, is is there any way that people can reach out to you? Are you a, a- Yeah, absolutely. So we... um we do weekly demos in person on Wednesdays at um, our headquarters, which is at 6933 San Fernando Road, Glendale, California, 91201. Well, it's out there now. Uh, you <laughs> can also go to uh, Yep. Um, we also do weekly virtual demos on Tuesdays where we invite people to our YouTube live and Instagram live stream. And you can interact with us as if you were there with us, directing us and asking us to shoot different things, uh, put people in front of the lens, tell us to put up a negative fill, tell us to put up a backlight. We'll help you. We'll we'll interact with you as if you're there in the room with us and we can do all kinds of experimental things to try the lenses as if you were there with us. That's huge, man. Because there's a lot of listeners that listen to the show that are all over the place. You guys should do that. Great. That's huge. I know. Yeah, I'd love to have you. I know that you guys aren't here with us. You don't get to go hang out in the space, but that's cool, man. That's really cool. Well, Dan, dude. Thanks so much, Mike. It's been great. Thanks, man. Thanks for coming by. There it is in the can today's show. <laughs> there is some stories that Dan, like I, you, you hear me sort of sit back in the chair and I just put my head in my hands and I just listened. I had no idea about the German tank stuff. I had no idea. That's not in books for me. I don't know where he found that stuff. So cool. There's something really cool about being out here in, in California and Los Angeles because this is the, the, the birthplace of so much of this stuff and the only way you really get to know about it is that you're randomly hanging out on set with like this old guy who was the dude that was there when the thing was made right or uh, like i try to create that vibe for everybody listening by getting these folks on the show i'll tell you right now i'm more excited about getting some rando dude on the show uh that has access to this than i am getting a large celebrity because the episodes become as interesting as today's was. And I know it's nerdy and it's surface value. You'll look at the title for a show like this and go, I don't care about lenses, but it goes beyond that. I hope you guys feel that way. So when you're listening or looking for future episodes or past episodes to listen to of this show, don't judge an episode by its title, right? You never know what weird little side stories, what weird, what strange little paths we're going to get down 
And then you're going to be inspired by those things and change the way you shoot and do stuff. You know? Hope you guys like the show. I get along with Dan. I think he's fucking awesome. And uh, I can't wait for you guys to see this piece that I've shot. It's gorgeous. Um, and uh, I couldn't have done it without their lenses. You know? And, you know, they're not a sponsor yet. They should be, though. But they're not a sponsor yet on the show, so I'm not, you know, plugging them. But uh, they're a good resource, man. If you're a filmmaker out there trying to make your stuff feel and look like the movies that we loved growing up as kids, consider shooting anamorphic and do it for the right fucking reasons. Not all projects need to be anamorphic, man. They, like if you're shooting stuff for uh, cell phones, for iPhones, for TikTok, anamorphic can be a problem. And uh, I know uh, Dan and I were talking about this when we were at his seminar. He was saying that some people were turning their cameras sideways and shooting them vertically with anamorphics and framing it just for the center because they liked the light aberrations for TikTok posts. It's cool. You can, you can break the rules with that stuff. I think that's fun. And uh, their new uh, series that's coming out, their new Mercury series, is pretty awesome for that kind of thing. And I think it's those, don't quote me on this, but I think those things are formatted for like a Super 35 format which is uh, really great for some of the smaller cameras that are out there in the marketplace right now. I think that's the beauty of those ones. And they're very affordable, I think. So don't quote me on that stuff. But yeah, I think that's the deal. Definitely go check out their stuff. The links are in the description of today's episode, along with all the links of our sponsors, too. Make sure you click on our sponsor links, and that helps let them know that you're listening. And that keeps them around, keeps me able to do this fucking show. You know? Um, and uh, that's it. That's it. No more blabbing. Lots of new episodes on the way. Lots of fun new people for you guys to meet. Lots of cool new stories about Hollywood. I'm excited to be out here and running this show for you. Because uh, I'm pumped about what I learned today. There's a lot of stuff I heard today that I'll be telling over beers randomly at a bar somewhere. You know? You were here for the beginning. That's it. See you guys next Tuesday.